For anybody that hasn't heard the name John Williams before, uh, uh, well, you're in good company because it was actually pretty recently that I came across this book. Uh, maybe it was like sometime in the summer, just like randomly looking at Amazon for different selections. And I mean, this book immediately, right? John Williams' Stoner, uh, it just seemed like a cult classic right away. It was especially intriguing since that status is fairly recent, right? So, um, uh, I believe this is the edition that became famous, right? We're talking about during his lifetime, he sold something like 2000 copies of this book. Mm-hmm. And by the time that this edition came out, like well after his death, like a decade and a half after his death, actually, uh, you know, this became a, like a real like international uh, phenomenon. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, I'm always interested in, in kind of uh, uh, cold classics, if only for the fact that, they give you a pretty good insight into just human psychology, right? Sometimes you look at cult classics and you're wondering, like, why are people even drawn to this kind of shit? Well, you know, that, that's giving you a clue about, you know, human constitution. Other times you see exactly why, why something would be a cult classic, because even if, you know, there's not much artistry there, uh, 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 oftentimes it just tells you like, hey, we know what cultural moment we're in. We know what people believe. We know how people are responding to various things. And, you know, uh, some of these books, some of these movies that are cult classics, uh, they, uh, uh, they, they, they touch on, on those kinds of capstones, right? They, they touch on that kind of ph- phenomena uh, uh, more so than even sometimes like great art does right maybe great art is not concerned with some of these kinds of like you know uh, ephemeral or ephemera in general i guess um but uh, I, I i'm glad that i picked it up because unlike you know a cult classic that is just you know you're just wondering why it's there and then of course it's, it disappears you know decades from now it's actually a pretty good book um right let, let, I think it's not as good as as uh, people gave it credit for, but at minimum, it's still at minimum like a, a very good book. And I think there are some passages and some little uh, uh, turns, uh, even in a little bit of characterization, that might be legitimately great. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not sure if you want to add anything to it, just to give people like a general, you know, outline or or you know maybe your your feelings on it overall before we get into the the specifics and the chapters and kind of take things chronologically almost. Sure. So similar to you, I had never come across this book before or heard of it until you brought it up to me to read and then discuss here on an artifact. So I wasn't aware of the the cult classic status and after doing a little bit of research, you do realize that I think it was, uh, what did they say, early to mid-aughts maybe, that mm-hmm. this was rediscovered in a sense, uh, you know, initially published in 1965. And so 40 to 50 years later, here we are and there's a rediscovery and it's now been translated into a lot of different languages. It was a bestseller in France and the UK, I think, before it really took hold again in the States and now it, it has cult classic status in the States as well, and has received a fair amount of attention and commentary. So I, again, even though we both read a lot and come across a lot of different things, I hadn't encountered it before, but I agree with your assessment that it's, I thought it was a very good book and Mm -hmm. it, it, it does merit a revisiting here. I'm glad in that sense that it's been 
dredged back up from the past. And interesting that John Williams, when he was alive, he won a National Book Award or shared a National Book Award for his book, Augustus. But this one pretty much went under the radar. And yet it seems as though this is probably going to really be his literary legacy in, mm-hmm. in large part. So have you, have you, uh, um, have you like, uh, scanned even like some of the other books? Because I, I don't know uh, much about the other, I, I know like the broad outlines, but I mean, who knows, there might be like even a better book, uh, that he's written, but, uh, I, I will, you know, from this point on probably check out some of the other stuff that he's written on the strength of stoner. Right. I was going to plan to do the same thing. Cause I haven't, I haven't skimmed even for a minute, the other books yet. So it, this piqued my interest in his writing. Mm-hmm. It would be maybe down the road, you and I would have another discussion either briefly or at length about a, a parallax between one or two of his other books and this one mm-hmm. and how we feel like they stack up. So definitely interested in, in revisiting that. I know that during his lifetime, both while he was, I think, earning his degrees and then while he was a professor, he published some books of criticism, maybe one or two poetry collections, that kind of thing. So he wasn't enormously prolific, but he did, mm-hmm. he did publish some. And uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about the salient points of his life and, um, then, and then jump the, into the book itself or? Yeah. Uh, the, well, I, I guess maybe what's relevant uh, in some ways to Stoner is uh, he definitely had some fairly strong opinions on the arts. Uh, to give one example of the book, uh, Butcher's Crossing. Uh, when I came across that title, I realized that I heard that title before, right? I, I, I never, um, you know, but I, I had never read it. So uh, when I was reading uh, kind of his commentary on why he wrote this book, he said, listen, um, you know, when you look at typical Westerns, right? And this was written around the same time that, you know, uh, Sergio Leone was like, coming around and saying, okay, we've have all these like Westerns that are just kind of, you know, trite in some way. Uh, we have too many tropes that we need to either rehabilitate or just completely, you know, um, uh, eliminate in some way. Um, uh, he, he had the same sense for Butcher's Cro- Crossing. He was like, uh, listen, we have all this uh, trite stuff happening uh, in literature. And uh, let's think about doing a Western where it's like an Emersonian, Western, right? It's an, an Emersonian meditation on on life, on nature, so on and so forth. Um, and and you know, let, let, let's sort of uh, subsume, you know, um, uh, the Western under this kind of like wider, you know, a meditative rubric. Uh, uh, which I mean, that that's kind of like the right idea. You might disagree aesthetically with like, well, I would have, you know, maybe done that differently, maybe a different kind of Western. But the fact that he understood enough to say that there's a problem in this in this genre we need to do something different within it right we need to find a new way of of looking at these like you know old time myths essentially if we're talking about westerns right we're just talking about american mythology um mm-hmm. you know he knew enough to say that uh, for this to work as a work of art um uh, we're gonna have to tr- try something new right so uh and also like another thing uh, he uh, he genuinely seemed to not really give a shit about how much he was selling or not selling. Uh, he said that he became a writer for the intention specifically of of being a good writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he And he was a professor alongside that to just, you know, I guess, uh, uh, bankroll 
to the extent that being a professor is a bankroll of anything, but to bankroll <laughs> yeah. his artistic career, right? Um, yeah. He he, uh, he said, I'm going to be a professor and I'm going to, you know, uh, I'm going to teach. And when I have time to write, I'm, I'm going to write uh, in my off time, right? And he used like, I think mostly the summers to write and then uh, mostly his um, uh, uh, teaching days to, uh, 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 you know, just, just, just do regular teaching and not focus so much on art, which, you know, which is very, very draining. Um, uh, he he was also this kind of like uh, I don't I, I guess we could use uh, the phrase alcoholic, uh, but it, it does call to mind maybe some wrong things. Like he wasn't an alcoholic in the sense that John Berryman was an alcoholic, where uh, mm-hmm. you know John Berryman would be getting introduced to a poetry reading, and suddenly this like completely like drunk guy who's slurring his speech. And by the way, that slurred speech like adds weirdly enough, some, some good stuff to the dream songs. I mean, if you think about the title, the dream songs, right. And you think about how the poems are structured and how they feel, they, they do have a very drunken feel to them. And when you, uh-huh. when you hear him sort of pronouncing this in his like actual literal drunken slur, um, you see exactly why he might've written some of the things, the way that he wrote them. Uh, right. But, but with uh, John Williams, he was, uh, his wife, like I, I've read this interview with his uh, widow, uh, and she said that he had this like low grade dependence where he would sort of, you know, start the day uh, when he was writing, just sort of just start drinking, right? Maybe mm-hmm. he would have like, he would start with a, you know, a, a shot here, a shot there, really kind of drag it across so that you're not completely out of it, but you're always not sober, right? Um, right. And and uh, 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 I don't know what relevance this would have like, explicitly to uh, the book stoner, um, but uh, it, it's, it's just an interesting detail in the sense that, you know, he did not want to like force himself into this kind of, you know, uh, oblivion, right, of like a, a drunken stupor. But the fact that he wanted enough of this kind of escape and, and his widow was like, listen, um, you know, uh, as much as that might have been kind of uh, annoying, like he was a very quiet drunk. He was a dependable drunk in the sense that you could depend on him to drink every day, but he mm-hmm. could also depend on him to like live a normal life, not to like get you know, all, all shouty and crazy and actually like drunken, drunken. Right. Um, and, and she said, you know, he, he went through world, world war two. He clearly had some sort of like post-traumatic stress disorder related to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not entirely surprising to me that he just, you know, uh, took up drinking soon after that, even if he never was truly like a full blown alcoholic in the sense of a John Berriman or someone else that actually dies you know, uh, uh, somewhat, you know, from, from, uh, uh, specifically, you know, that kind of behavior. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because with stoner, there are definitely autobiographical elements that will become apparent. We've already sketched enough of John Williams's life that viewers will be able to, to draw some parallels here, but with the, the actual character of stoner in the novel, he's, He's he's not a, a drunkard. He's not particularly adventurous in any way. Williams, like you said, he was this uh, you know pilot in World War II and stationed in India and Burma, I think, during his time. And then, kind of a you know, he had this steady drinking going on, which Stoner doesn't have. Other other characters have uh, one one in particular, his daughter Grace, where it becomes sort of a core part of, of her character that we mm-hmm. might talk about for a minute later. But yeah, Stoner is just a very, in, in that way he is, you know, it's kind of autobiographical because Stoner is just that plodding, dependable, uh, 
carry it forward sort of metronomic person uh, or personality type. Mm-hmm. So some of that does come through. And, and then there's Stoner's University is University of Missouri, where he gets his education and spends his whole teaching career. And mm-hmm. Williams got his PhD from University of Missouri, although he spent his career in University of Denver. So there, there's some little parallels he throws in there, but I think you and I would both agree it was smart decisions made by Williams to not make this purely autobiographical. Mm-hmm. He, he picks and chooses, you know? Yeah. Um, it, this actually reminds me, and perhaps we could just like get into, you know, a little bit of a chronological uh, breakdown a little bit. Uh, so like when the book uh, opens, um, uh, so William Stoner is, he's coming from this like farming family, family, right? Just like um, uh, John Williams did. Uh, mm-hmm. John Williams, I don't think himself was ever truly like explicitly a farmer, but, you know, he, uh, f- uh, until his death, he was constantly growing vegetables, um, you know, uh, t- tending to his like various gardens. So he definitely had, you know, a, a history with that. that. That was part of his kind of uh, upbringing. Um, and uh, w- when we look at uh, uh, William Stoner, though, uh, so he, he's, he has this kind of hard scrabble existence, right? He looks at his family. Mm-hmm. His parents are, you know, already kind of incredibly weathered. They're yes. very kind of quiet. They're stoic. They're kind of, you know, accepting things as they come. I, I, I we didn't actually write down the parents, but now that I think of it. Uh, the parents are probably some of my favorite characters. Like I remember, for example, when uh, uh, William Stoner was getting married and they were just kind of like happily like standing around like his, like his mother just kind Mm -hmm. of like with this faint smile. And she, she's described almost kind of like in this almost like grandmotherly fashion. uh, And you could just sort of see that this peasant woman who does not, you know, she, 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 by the way that she's described, she doesn't seem to have tons of like truly, complex thoughts like her her entire life was like you know uh, uh, tending the soil and you're just wondering like what exactly must she be thinking in this situation does the uh, uh william stoner character like is he sort of thinking like what is she thinking uh does he see a disconnect between himself and and, and her in the sense that he's already kind of like you know gotten away from this you know, a, a hard scrabble existence and he wants to do something completely different with his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it's true that that uh, a William Stoner doesn't necessarily take all that many risks in his life, but it seems as if like that initial risk that he undertakes, which is his father sends him off to university so that he could learn, you know, uh, like modern techniques for like you know, increasing yield and, you know, just, right. just tending the soil in, in better ways, I guess. Um, and, and he, and his big gamble was, you know what? Uh, I know this is my existence. I know that this is where my answers, answers, ancestors come from. And there's like this passage uh, related, relating to that. Um, but, you know, I, I just want to do something else. Like I, I feel like something else has been opened up in me by reading these books and thinking about poetry. And I'm more interested in that now. So that, that seems to be like that, that initial gamble, like when he's like, what is like 19 or 20 years old. Um, and then from that point on, he just decides like, okay, this is my big gamble. I am literally escaping from this, you know, the, the, this causal chain of, of parentage and, and so on and so forth. Um, and from this point forward, you know, this is going to be my existence now. Right. That, that is his first big gamble. And during that time, we see that it's pretty subtle, but he does start to also lose relationships 
from early in his life by making his decisions because he stayed with his aunt and uncle for mm-hmm. his entire time at university. And they were in a sense, kind and generous enough to allow him room and board, but they're also very standoffish. They don't, they don't engage with him. They have no interest in, especially once he decides to take this turn and study literature, he's more or less dead to them. Right. It's, it's just that, mm-hmm. that he's going to continue living in their place. They're going to allow that to happen, but they, uh, you kind of get the sense that they don't really respect him anymore. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the original reason he went to university in the first place has now been undone. And same with his father, when he has that conversation with his dad, where he talks to him about making this shift. And I think the description is something along the lines of his father's face stayed as, as straight as if receiving blows upon a stone Mm -hmm. from fists or or this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. I think maybe I have it highlighted, but yeah, he, he just decides that this is more important and, or at least more of a draw after, after this initial mm-hmm. engagement with the subject. And it, it's an interesting way that it happens too. I don't know what you thought, but it, it's really kind of funny in a way because he has this moment almost of embarrassment in front of his mm-hmm. whole class where Professor Sloan, Archer Sloan, who has a big influence on his life, continues to ask him, what what is the meaning of this passage? What is the meaning of this poem from Shakespeare? And he freezes, he can't answer he doesn't come up with anything and then the whole class eventually dissipates and he's left sitting there mm-hmm. and, and thinking, uh, why did this have such an effect on me? And, and I think initially my expectation was that he would be maybe be frustrated by that and want to move away from it, but instead it draws him back. Mm-hmm. And so he makes an interesting decision that way uh, after a you know, more or less a moment of embarrassment and eventually interacts more with his, with Sloan who says, well, don't you know, you're, you're meant to teach. You're meant to mm-hmm. study these things. I don't understand why you haven't already grasped that. And yet, as with numerous other points in the book, Stoner then goes on to this moment of reflection where he realizes, yeah, I suppose he's right. More or less, this is what I've already decided to do, even if I mm-hmm. haven't admitted it to myself. So now I need to carry on with that. And, and he procrastinates, right? He doesn't mm-hmm tell his parents literally until his graduation ceremony, basically mm-hmm. what he's decided to do. So uh, the, those relationships are uh, interesting in how, uh, how blocked they are and just how uh, unemotional mm-hmm. they are with his aunt and uncle and mom and dad. Yeah. Um, that, that makes me think of how, uh, so, uh, when when Archer Sloan like uh, essentially gets confronts him and says like listen you have to be a teacher you have to uh, go forward with this um, you know it makes me wonder whether that is like uh, so like w- what is that example of in the writerly sense so um, there there must have been some kind of implied characterization right like it's very possible that as uh, uh, William Stoner is sitting around this class kind of. You know, I guess I can imagine him trying to take notes. I can imagine him falling behind, not really getting a lot of the material, but clearly sort of, you know, interested and maybe feeling frustrated that, hey, why why isn't this uh, easier, right? That this feels mm-hmm. like it should be easier. Uh, and, you know, uh, uh, Archer Sloan could have just easily just been um, thinking, well, he's struggling with this in a way that maybe I struggled or I saw other people uh, struggle with. 
and now I see William Stoner struggling in this way. Um, uh, clearly, he's cut out to do what I ended up doing here, right, in my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it just makes me think, like, uh, if this is the conclusion that he draws, like, in a, in a writerly sense, right, you're sort of meant to imagine, like, preceding this, like, after Sloan says you're meant to teach, then you have to sort of go back in your mind and think, okay, well, I've seen William Stoner in this book thus far do the following things. I've seen him sit in class. I've seen him struggle. What exactly about that that was written uh, uh, has only been implied and has not been explicitly stated, right? So, I mean, there must there must have been something, right, if you're just thinking in terms of characterization. And actually, I mean, before we get any further, we should probably, like, I, I think the opening um, set of paragraphs really gives a sense of um, what uh, uh, this character is, right? And perhaps yeah. where John Williams as a writer where does he stand in relation to these characters, which I think is a very uh, good question to ask, especially closer closer to the end when, when we think about how you know the characterization uh, unfolds. Like you always want to you always want to wonder um, uh, whether or not like you know an author is being critical of an idea in some way or a character in some way versus oh this is you know a, a character let's say misbehaving or otherwise behaving in some way. Um, uh, I'm not sure, like, uh, do, do, would you want to read the uh, opening? Um, sure, the first couple paragraphs, basically. Yeah, but, uh, there's that, like, paragraph break uh, mm-hmm. at, on page four, so I guess up to there. Okay, yeah, I can take it there. So, William Stoner entered the University of Missouri as a freshman in the year 1910 at the age of 19. Eight years later, during the height of World War I, he received his Doctor of Philosophy degree and accepted an instructorship at the same university, where he taught until his death in 1956. He did not rise above the rank of assistant professor, and few students remembered him with any sharpness after they had taken his courses. When he died, his colleagues made a memorial contribution of a medieval manuscript to the university library. This manuscript may still be found in the rare books collection bearing the inscription presented to the library of the University of Missouri in memory of William Stoner, Department of English, by his colleagues. An occasional student who comes upon the name may wonder idly who William Stoner was, but he seldom pursues his curiosity beyond a casual question. Stoner's colleagues who held him in no particular esteem when he was alive speak of him rarely now. To the older ones, his name is a reminder of the end that awaits them all. And to the younger ones, it is merely a sound which evokes no sense of the past and no identity with which they can associate themselves or their careers. Um, well, I mean, like, did you have like any, uh, like, 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 I guess I could ask this, cause I, I remember distinctly feeling certain things and thinking certain things when I read this, like, did you have like an immediate reaction when you read that opening? Yeah, I did. It's a unique opening from the sense that it it does not make any effort to to make you want to like Stoner, I guess, Mm -hmm. from the get-go. It's it's so non-heroic. It's so nondescript. And ordinarily, I I feel like most of the time with uh, the main character in a novel, we're going to be we're going to be led to think something different than that about them, most likely. So um, 
yeah, just with how blunt this was and reading basically like an epitaph and, and yet we know nothing about his actual experiences yet. It's, uh, it's off putting in a sense. It actually, believe it or not, made me laugh a little bit mm -hmm. because it's just so uh, like almost deadpan uh, funny in a way to introduce the, the main character in your novel mm -hmm. this way. So those were, those were my immediate reactions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I I remember when I first read it, thinking immediately like, okay, um, this is clearly like a major fucking gamble, right? Because yeah, you know, John mm -hmm. John Williams is essentially presenting the protagonist of the novel as uh, this guy that doesn't have uh, at least like like when it comes to something to eventually be written about him. There is not all that much to be said by others, right? So you're wondering, right. first of all, okay, is this a critique of people's, people's perceptions, right? And that perceptions are oftentimes bad and he's actually like a very valuable human being. Is this a critique of uh, uh, William Stoner? Um, uh -huh. is this, a, is this a critique of something else? Cause you know, it, it's, 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 it's a major gamble in the sense that if you're telling the reader right away that this is not someone that is just immediately likable, or this is not someone, uh, that has done anything truly of note, this is someone that is very easy to forget. Um, you're going to now have to like spend some time making sure that, the reader actually does find stoner relatable. The reader right. uh, actually finds, uh, if not like vindication in stoner's life, then something of the critique, right? That that makes sense, right? Um, uh, usually like you get the opposite, right? Especially in like the worst writing, you have this overcompensation where, you know, to make an interesting protagonist, you need like, you know, all the, all the bells and whistles, right? You, you need them to be like a spa. Right. You need them to be like right. a womanizer. Right. You need them, you know, like a thousand different things. Yes. Uh, here you have like the exact opposite. It's being sort of put out front. Um, and you're also being told that, you know, even the people around him just had no real impression of him, even if they were working with him for decades upon decades. And you're thinking, okay, either, these impressions are correct, right? Or they're missing something critical. So, you know, what's it going to be? Um, yeah, like you said, it's a unique way to to uh, start a book. It's also, uh, I, I remember also thinking kind of nervous because although like, yes, I, I have like a lot of like negative essays or like negative videos uh, on things, like I, I do prefer to come across like a cult classic or, or something that other people don't really know about and it actually being quite good, right? Um, it's it's right. better for me as a person, right? Sitting through something for a few hours that actually edifies you in some ways, just objectively better than the opposite long-term, right? Um, imagine surrounding yourself with, with garbage uh, year after year. You're gonna be a very different person than if you surround yourself with great art and really try to understand it. Um, and, and, you know, I, I was kind of nervous, like shit, like, is it going to actually like pull this off in some way? Because this seems to me like a setup for failure, unless you really know what you're doing. Um, right. and, right. and, 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 you know, it, it turned like, a, a, as the book went on though, you see like, you know, you, you, you see like that was a fairly prosaic introduction, but you know, every single, uh, page of the book probably has like a line or a paragraph or a set of sentences in some way that are, you know, you're clearly well-written that are memorable, that are, you know, uh -huh. saying something of depth and of value. So, you know, th th that feeling kind of went away uh, quickly enough, but I did have that very nervous feeling from the beginning. Right. Yeah. The, 
You know? the, the way that it's almost, I'm sure in a way this was intentional by Williams, but like you said, there's a hard break after those two introductory paragraphs. And then it's like the, the book actually starts in a way, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and, and he switches to his more, uh, you know, just, just more uh, elevated prose style, I suppose, mm -hmm. that, that mm -hmm. then persists through the whole story. And, and so you're exactly right on some of those points. I also think that in a way, this, although it is a gamble, it did, it, it made me interested. Maybe you need to be a certain type of reader to, to, to read that introduction and feel this way, but it actually made me quite interested to carry on to learn more about Stoner because it's, you're thinking, so if this person's so apparently nondescript and their life is, is so trivial, why are we then about to proceed to spend 300 pages telling the story? Mm -hmm. what, what goes on? And yet, in that sense too, it's, it's also a story about billions of people's lives mm -hmm. throughout history, right? That are, that are, you know, people come and go and, and don't leave any kind of real mark except in maybe in a tiny circle uh, around their immediate surroundings while they live. So anyway, it's, it's, it's an interesting, uh, interesting, you know, gambit to, to start out with. And then we, we mm -hmm. kick off into the rest of the book. So do you want to talk about the chronology of what happens? Just that some of the major plot points? Yeah. Um, well, well, yeah, just to touch on what you uh, said um, in terms of like people not l leaving their marks. Uh, uh, yeah, this is another one of those situations where I just wonder uh, what exactly is, um, you know, I know, I know the critique of the characters within the book by the characters themselves and perhaps or self-perceptions, but what is John Williams's critique here? Because on the one hand, you know that his parents probably don't feel this way about him. They're like, wow, he's actually gone through university. Not only did he finish university, he also, you know, um, uh, became a professor there. And he's interested in all this highfalutin stuff. Right. You know, maybe one time he talked to them about like his reading of Latin or whatever else. Or maybe he mentioned at some point that he was uh, thinking of uh, writing a book. And uh, this to his family would be so kind of outside of uh, the ken of their own understanding their own lives and really kind of like you know mo most people right especially back then they would not be in a situation where first of all they would you know even get into college mm -hmm. um and and then you know uh, be professors that are kind of moved by all the all these abstractions that don't necessarily relate to day-to-day -day life uh, in the way that you know other forms of material reality might might kind of overtly relate to um so uh 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 already like we have a little bit of that disconnect in terms of like you know the billions and billions but then you think well okay so he did go to college did become a professor he was moved by abstractions uh you, you then wonder well kind of like so what right where, where is that actually leading to you know th th this lot life of you know the mind uh, lead to wonderful literature being made or or a mark that that you know went beyond kind of like the fact that he's so uh, intrigued by you know uh, all this stuff right um uh, be beyond his yeah. intrigue and beyond his attachment to the life of the mind what exactly came of the life of the mind because if the answer is well it gave him personally you know a, a rich kind of fulfilling set of experiences 
um, outside of, you know, perhaps his marriage and, and other things, uh, uh, um, uh, still, you know, like, like, so what, right? This is what his personal experience is. And, you know, he touched some students, so what, right? Um, so right. It, it just makes me wonder, like, like I, I don't have reading that opening paragraph or, you know, even to the point where like the book ends, I don't necessarily yet have uh, so far in the book, uh, at least where we are chronologically, I don't have a, a sense of where John Williams is himself in this critique, right? I could sort mm-hmm. of maybe imagine it, uh, what he might say, but a lot of it just feels kind of dangerous because um, he did he did say things like, uh, when he was writing this book, he was like, um, you know, uh, William Stoner is supposed to be this like saint figure, right? That he's constantly doing the right thing. Is he? He's constantly being whipped by the world. Um, and I, I, I don't know if objectively, just by the text alone, reading reading the book, that you could necessarily come away w- with the idea that he is saintly, totally in that regard, and that he is worthy right because th- that worthiness is never truly defined which is kind of um it seems a little bit of a cop-out to me um you know to, to the extent that i think this is a very good or excellent novel and not a truly great one a lot of that disconnect is, is there right we never truly get that point that all-encompassing sort of position uh and even like you know uh, williams's own comments on the book don't a hundred percent you know, uh, gel with what I'm reading. Right. Right. Sometimes at least. Yeah. Yeah. When I saw some of those same comments from Williams that, that you just mentioned where that was apparently his perception of Stoner's character. I, I didn't come away from the novel thinking that at all. I, I don't perceive Stoner as saintly or saint like. And I didn't throughout the whole novel. He, in a lot of ways, he's a very frustrating character. I think, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of it is his decision making and the way that he approaches uh, his relationships and some of his conflicts, and and then even his, his his teaching, right? This calling, this thing that he's decided to pursue with some cost, with some expense, uh, especially relationally in his life. Like by, by the end of it, what is the real outcome? What is the real mm-hmm. result? We'll we'll talk about the final scene of the book in a little bit, I'm sure. And there there's some interesting moments there, but for the most part, as we go along, you you it's it's interesting because you do empathize with Stoner. Yet I also found myself being pretty hard on him at mm-hmm. other times for maybe not for some of the things even necessarily that that people other readers would be hard on him for, mm-hmm. but. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that more maybe as we go mm-hmm. along, but it, yeah, saint-like is, is not really what I'd come up with. Yeah. Um, oh, so, so I guess that we could get into to the, the chronology then so we could, you know, give people like some, some meat, right. To contextualize some mm-hmm. kind of more abstract discussion. Um, so, okay. So, you know, he, he grows up uh, in this hard scrabble way. Uh, <clears throat> his family are farmers. He enters university, changes his plans to ultimately become this, this professor. So, uh, he's, uh, after his PhD, he's offered a kind of like a professorship. Um, uh, uh, he, and, and, you know, he kind of sticks with it for the rest of his life. Um, soon mm-hmm. after, uh, he becomes a professor, World War I starts, uh, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, America gets involved. And uh, a lot of his uh, friends that 
well, I, I guess kind of like friends and um, he wasn't necessarily close to some of these people at the beginning, but um, uh, people like Dave Masters, uh, Gordon Finch, uh, mm-hmm. people that he's like teaching with, uh, people he sometimes meets for, for drinks uh, after work, you know, once or twice a week. Um, a lot of them just say, you know what, fuck it, we're going to go off to war. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh some of the kind of like older, wiser characters, right? Like uh, uh, Archer Sloan is supposed to be, you know, this mentor to um, uh, William Stoner. And, uh, he, you know, he just says like, you know, I, I've seen this happen before, this kind of, you know, crazy, uh, uh, you know, he didn't use the word tribalism, but that's kind of what he's getting at, this kind of, you know, collective frenzy, right? Where everybody feels like they must do and it turns out to be some kind of sacrifice i'm not sure exactly what war he was referencing uh, from his from his youth but um mm-hmm. uh to me it, it was an interesting choice by john williams to explicitly say listen i personally went through world war ii but i'm not going to set this novel you know uh, around this time i'm gonna make this guy uh, go through world war one Right. He's not he doesn't ultimately serve. Right. But his friends do. Gordon Finch goes. Uh, uh, David Masters uh, goes to serve. Uh, Dave Masters ultimately gets killed. Gordon Finch mm-hmm. comes back uh, and is a professor now. And he kind of like, you know, he's a careerist. So he goes up in the ranks pretty quickly. I think ultimately he's the one that offers like a, in a permanent basis, uh, uh, um, William Stoner, uh, his job. And um, wh- when I when I th- Maybe you have a comment on this, but when I think about the fact that he he chose to set this in World War One, uh, I mean it, it was very wise for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, just you know, this book was written when 1965 it was published. Um, Correct. Yeah. At that point, if you're going to be talking about World War Two, and even to to this day, like today, right? If you talk about World War Two, that always has this perception of this was the good war right mm-hmm, uh, this is the mm-hmm. war that had to be waged this was the war that was truly patriotic and yeah of course in the past we have examples of bad wars but not this one this one was a great war um but when you think back to world war one uh i'm not so sure that the per- perceptions of even people in the 60s uh, uh I, I they probably did not have this like fond recollection of you know the patriotic nature and the necessity of going through world war one Right. I agree with all that. And I don't think I have a whole lot to add from uh, to, to what you just said um, from the standpoint of, of like scene setting. But I do think that one of the other purposes that that it serves to have it start and, and be like Stoner's University time around World War One, maybe two things. First, that because with his character there we just said we don't necessarily agree with uh, with the saintly characterization, but there is this element of long suffering mm-hmm. in his life and his family goes through this and he carries it on in his own way. And so for him to live through both world wars contributes to that in a way, right? He has his coming of age is during world war one. And then he, again, you know, a few decades later ends up as an older person going through World War II. He's obviously not going to be called upon to serve, but it does affect mm-hmm. him very deeply. And one of my favorite passages from the book, uh, which I'll probably read from later, um, is, is him reflecting on World War II now and this, uh, this public sense of dread that's invading his life for a second time in his mm-hmm. life. And so I think that it contributes to his character pretty strongly. And I also think that it allows for 
a parallel to be drawn with Archer Sloan mm -hmm. because, you know, he has this really important figure in his life that sets him up for his professorial career. And yet Sloan dies, you know, uh, late, later on and, and basically it, it creates this dissonance in Stoner's mind where he's reflecting on Sloan's death and then also Dave Masters' death in World War I and some of the things that are uh, like this confluence uh, between them. And so I, I think it, it allows him to have some of these same realizations that maybe he was understanding Sloan to be going through at the time and creates some kind of like symmetry between mm -hmm. their characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's true. I, I wasn't uh, thinking so much about the fact that like uh, be, being, you know, the, on the front there, right. Being in world war one versus two, uh, you are setting up this thing where you can cyclically like touch upon world war two simply by um, uh, having that, you know, uh, in the past. Right. And sort of saying like, you know, uh, it's easier for us to say, especially with like Nazism and other like objective evils, you know, uh, it's easy to say that this was like the the great and necessary war, right? But, uh, uh, you know, but also like if you're kind of thoughtful about it, like you also see the roots of, of any of these wars with the kinds of terrible decision-making that those in power, you know, are, are constantly uh, engaged in and constantly, you know, sacrificing everybody else in, in that process, right? Um, you mm -hmm. have like the, the great power uh, of politics and then everyone else is kind of uh, caught in, in the crosshairs as it were. Um, okay. So, so like we're, so we're, so this is after world war one, he gets the professorship, Gordon Fitch comes back. Um, mm -hmm. and, and Gordon Finch is this, um, like I said earlier, he, he's very kind of a uh, careerist, right? He's, he, he's very good at uh, uh, sort of climbing the ranks. He's uh, uh, good at, um, Staking out alliances, fine, but he 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 does it in a way that seems to really benefit him. Like you know, at some point, I think it's kind of obvious that he wanted, for example, to give um, uh, William Stoner this. What was it like? Was it like a chairmanship? Chair, chair of the department. Yeah, yeah, yeah. chair, chair of the English department. Um, I think it's English. It might have been some. Yeah, probably is English. Uh, so chair of the yeah. English department. Like he sort of wants to, but he doesn't do it because there's like somebody that maybe is more credentialed, someone that is more, um, you know, uh, maybe would look better in the context uh, of the university to have this kind of position. So even, you know, with his friend being there, um, and, you know, it, it seems like his best friend is, is uh, uh, a William Stoner. Um, he kind of sacrificed, like, like you said earlier that Gordon Finch does things to help out his friend when he can. But I, I think that's kind of like the, the important distinction, right? Um, if you're only going to do it when you can and you define when you can, when, uh, oh, uh, when I can is when it doesn't personally interrupt like my career. Like I don't have to do the right thing all the time and sort of disrupt myself in some way. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not truly like 
a, a, a friendship that's not truly a sacrifice. You're just looking for places where, you know, the two of you might mesh and have mutual benefits. But here, you know, this thing that requires you to do something that might open you up to like greater scrutiny or some kind of damage, right? You're not going to give, you know, uh, the chairmanship to, to uh, a stone or instead you give it to this guy Lomax that, you know, just throughout the entire book, he just strikes me as a complete, you know, a uh, piece of shit character. Um, and Gordon mm-hmm. Finch also kind of understands that, but you know, the careerism is, uh, is too strong in him to, uh, for him to act otherwise. Right. Um, so, uh, G- Gordon Finch is always like, uh, I always kind of cringe a little bit when the two of them are in conversation because th- there's always like something transactional, uh, there. Uh, yes. and there's always like something like kind of fake about Gordon, like, uh, how, you know, he's kind of like, even like at the beginning when he's kind of like talking about going off to war and saying, you really are disapp- letting us down if you don't do this. Um, you know, that's just kind of like, you know, just typical, like, you know, ha- hyper-masculine bullshit and everybody knows it. Um, right. and, and he's painting it as something else. And, uh, of course the stakes later on are not war, they become lower, but he, he paints like this similar situations where there's some kind of stakes involved and the same kind of like heroic narrative, like, Oh, I really do this thing for you. But right. Like, um, like he, he could go to war because he thinks it's worthwhile, but he can't do this thing for his friend because, you know, uh, uh like it, it all comes down to in a sense himself, like he's going off to war, not because it's a necessity, but because he wants to look a certain way. He He's giving this chairmanship to someone other than Stoner because he wants it to impact him a certain way. Right. So it's all it's all, you know, perception and careers, careerism with Gordon Finch. Um, yeah, that's the way that I see that character. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh don't have a don't have a whole lot to add there other than it, it maybe is worth noting that in the conversation he has with stoner about the chairmanship stoner says he doesn't want it and the reader's left wondering like finch has this like leading leading the horse to water mm-hmm. and then let and then like letting stoner drink right mm-hmm. he's he's kind of like asking him some leading questions and eventually stoner's like so, so you're asking me if i want this position Mm-hmm. Well, I, well, I don't. And Finch is like, yeah, I, I figured, I figured, um, yeah. you know, so, but, 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 no. but the leading questions are phrased in such a way where he also seems to not want Stoner to take it. He doesn't right? want him to No, yeah. no. Yeah. And, and you know, is, is, is Stoner someone that's going to fight about that? Right. Cause he, he like, to the extent that we could see these like negative qualities in Gordon Finch, like he never once calls out Gordon Finch. Like, you remember that fucking shit where you got Dave Masters to go to war? Wasn't that some bullshit? Or you remember that shit with the chairmanship? Like he never does that. He just sort of passively accepts it. Like he does, you know, every other part of his life. So, you know, to what extent can they even be best friends? I mean, I guess they can be, but it's a, it's a friendship that is, very superficial, I think, in many ways. Oh yeah, yeah, it, it certainly is, and and that's exactly it. You know, it's it's obvious he doesn't want Stoner to say yes. He also mm-hmm. doesn't expect Stoner to say yes. And then as soon as he confirms that, mm-hmm. Finch is like, okay, good, good, good. You know, figured figured you wouldn't want to. So yeah. anyway, um, yeah, that. But so to continue on, then right, yeah, like he has these relationships with with Masters and Finch, and uh, while he's completing his. Um, graduate work he meets edith mm-hmm. right and uh and, and the woman who oh yeah like, I, I, we just skipped over edith yeah so, yeah, he, so, so he, he meets edith right his future wife before the professorship right yeah so he's he's completing his graduate work and at some kind of you know campus event or party he is uh, it's not something that he's, he's introduced to edith he sees her and she strikes him a certain way 
right? And and then eventually he decides to to speak to her, and it, it, there's descriptions about the effect she has on him mm-hmm. and all these kind of things. It's a bit of a classic boy meets girl moment. There's not a whole lot more to it, and then he just is interested sexually and yeah. any other way, and so he decides to ask her ask her if he can see her again, and she says yes, and from the get-go you just feel like edith is a strange person yeah yeah and and the way that she interacts with him and and it's the most frigid rigid cold acceptance of his advance possible basically and uh, yeah yes you may call kind of thing and it's it's so formal and and all this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff so you're there's like this just off sense about mm-hmm. her and about what their relationship's going to become, knowing what we already know of him by that point too, that he's, I mean, you know, he's just not a, he's not a suave person. He's mm-hmm. not a, he's not a smooth talker. He's going to be awkward inevitably with whatever person he's going to be interested in. Right. And, and these kind of things. So anyway, he meets her and, and they, I forget how long they date for. It's not incredibly long. And they decided it's, it's to get a short married. time. Yeah. Short time. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah. Do you think that was by the way, realistic? Like, do you think, um, like, do you think the way that they, that, that stoner falls in love with Edith? Uh, do you think that was realistic or do you think that was like just a, a full on characterization? Because, you know, as my, this is the thing that like, we don't want to like read too much into the past because we're, you know, we're not the past, we're modern men, but uh, immediately, you know, like you had that negative feeling about Edith, so did I, because, you know, we've probably been around women like this and we sort of know where this would lead. And like, you know, like clearly like you should just stop and not pursue this kind of person. Uh, but, mm-hmm. the, but the fact that he immediately sees her immediately kind of seems to like fall in love or lust or whatever, very, just, you know, just very, very fast. And then is, is, is insistent upon marriage. Um, you know, is that just like uh, the predictable naivete and to think that you would expect from William Stoner as a character. So of course he would go out and do something like this as someone that, you know, never had sex, never had um, any kind of uh, a romantic relationship or, is this like a hint of some of the characterization pitfalls? Maybe not so much in Stoner, but like, like I said, uh, like I said in the show notes, um, I think there's problems with Edith's characterization. But like, like, what was your impression of that? Like, from a writerly perspective, is basically what I'm asking. Sure. Yeah, it it did feel a bit forced to me because I I, I guess I'm just riffing a little bit here in the moment, but I, I suppose that that's not really what I expected Stoner's entry into a love life to be. Mm-hmm. And, and I certainly didn't expect it to be uh, like quite so smooth in the sense that it was, I know that's a little bit of a weird way to, to phrase it, but you know, he, he meets her, they date mm-hmm. briefly, he meets her parents and asks them, I think on the first time of meeting them to marry her, mm-hmm. they're wealthy St. Louis, upper crust people so they're they're kind of from the big city in a way Mm -hmm. and it's obvious edith comes from money or the appearance of money Mm -hmm. uh, with her dad as the president of a bank and in all of those moments i I guess i expected for stoner at some point to have more hesitation or maybe rethink this or Mm -hmm. i'm in the midst of starting my career what i really want to to just marry this person 
what would she want out of life? What does she want out of life? We don't get any of those signs from Edith. There's no conversations really between them about those things until we get to the the, the hyper awkwardness of their mm-hmm. sexual life and then deciding to have a child in, in a little bit. And so, um, yeah, it, it does come across as a bit forced. And even the characters of her parents, I had I had some moments where I was like, of, of course they're like rich you know, just buffoons from mm-hmm. the big city. Like the, it's just kind of like almost too convenient that s- bumbling stoner, right? This person from the farm who discovers an affinity and an ability with with literature and at least teaching it, then meets some woman who like just kind of sucks him in. And, and then is he enamored with her family's wealth? Is he put off by that? We don't really know, but he obviously is okay with it enough to just carry forward despite Mm -hmm. some pretty clear red flags that then Mm -hmm. later turn out to be true that he just bypasses. And you're kind of like, is, is he really this dense um, Mm -hmm. to just motor through this whole phase of the book? And it, Mm -hmm. it felt a little bit like Williams was just kind of like, well, here's kind of something that needs to happen for then some other things to happen to stoner later that he's got to Mm -hmm. deal with. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that, That was my assessment. I actually don't remember her parents as characters all that well, um, but yeah, like, you know, there, there, there is, there is some level of, uh, caricature here. Um, but maybe, maybe before we get to the, uh, the rest of the characters, cause I have like lots of like quotes and stuff r- related to that. Um, I mean, do you, do you want to continue with like a- after like uh, marriage, like w- what happens, like maybe the honeymoon? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess we can breeze along so yeah they they go on their honeymoon so to speak and they they're they're sexual they're both virgins so you know their their initial sexual encounter is like about as awkward as it gets and edith essentially wants nothing to do with him i i think they do consummate the marriage but then it it's immediately uh, there's no intimacy or, or essentially no intimacy between them mm-hmm. for a length of time. And they're, they move into an apartment near the university that is is pretty wanting because they don't have means, really. Sonar's still a, you know, a student and, and all these kind of things. But she seems to to be still excited about this and, and what have you. And then they're there for, I think, a couple of years two or three years and then she decides more or less out of the blue that she really, really wants a child mm-hmm. and, and almost just tells him this and, and forces it upon him in a way. And that you said in the show notes, there's this cla- classic argument of sorts. Uh, and, yeah. and because stoner is stoner, it's not even so much an argument. It's more a, Oh, well, we'll talk about that later, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, kind, yeah. kind of thing when she breaks this to him. And so, uh, then they do, right. They, yeah. they have this only, only time of passion in their whole marriage where, you know, they, apparently they have a lot of sex and then Edith mm-hmm. does get pregnant. And then, uh, mm-hmm. a little while later, their, their, their daughter Grace is born and things go back to being, Mm-hmm. incredibly cold and distant uh you know it's like they live on the arctic circle together or mm-hmm. something yeah and and then it all really degrades from there between the two of them yeah i i, I think that that, that kind of like beginning part of the marriage is sort of worth uh dwelling on in the context of of, of uh, the book um 
So uh, what I'm not sure if you notice this, but like, first of all, uh, with a book like this and you have like a naive character that is clearly, you know, out to damage himself consciously or not by, you know, kind of going forward with this kind of, with this kind of marriage, um, you, 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 first of all, you expect that there would be some kind of consummation, right? Uh, during the honeymoon period, right? Um, mm-hmm. That doesn't happen. And in fact, uh, what I found like to be like a, a really nice uh, touch on the part of uh, uh, John Williams here, uh, he does not give you ever a specific point where the two of them lose their virginity. In fact, the oh, first okay. the, fir- the yeah. first time that you see them having sex, it just springs in you just like really like out of the blue and you're like, wow, so this must have already happened and this is now an afterthought. Right. And I have uh, uh, the quote um, uh, here. Right. So this is on uh, page 74 into page 75. Um, So this is after uh, the honeymoon. Within a month, he knew that his marriage was a failure. Within a year, he stopped hoping that it would improve. He learned silence and did not insist upon his love. If he spoke to her or touched her in tenderness, she turned away from him within herself and became wordless, enduring, and for days afterward drove herself to new limits of exhaustion. Out of an unspoken stubbornness they both had, they, they shared the same bed. Sometimes at night in her sleep, she unknowingly moved against him. And sometimes then his resolve and knowledge crumbled before his love and he moved upon her. If she was sufficiently roused from her sleep and she tensed and stiffened, turning her head sideways in a familiar gesture and burying it in her pillow, enduring violation, right? So that's the way that it's being described. This is like the first time that you have any description of sex, right? It's uh, she would stiffen, turn her head sideways, uh, enduring violation, Right. So clearly she does not want to have sex. Uh, she's not saying anything. Uh, uh-huh. he, he's doing it and you know, no one's stopping it. So whatever. At such times, Stoner performed his love as quickly as he could, hating himself for his haste and regretting his passion. Less frequently, she remained half numb by sleep. Then she was passive and she murmured drowsily, whether in protest or surprise, he did not know. He came to look forward to these rare and unpredictable moments. For in that sleep-drugged acquiescence, he could pretend to himself that he found a kind of response. Um, yeah, so, I mean, this is, this, is, this is the way. Like, we don't have a specific moment where they lose their virginity, but we know that after the honeymoon at some point, we have this kind of, you know, a drowsy kind of half-conscious, half-asleep sex. And this is the way that it's being characterized. Also very kind of, you know, uh, uh, dirty and awkward and, 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 you know, really kind of uh, undesirable and kind of, you know, pathetic in many ways, but just, just, you know, just from a writerly perspective, the fact that that moment is never fleshed out and you simply get that, you know, that, that, that's much better in terms of characterizing their marriage than, Mm -hmm. you know, paragraphs and paragraphs of like, you know, awkwardness or, or, you know, j- just like in the ending to, um, I, I remember one time, uh, uh, I had an, uh, I was having an argument with one of my professors in college. It was, a, a it was a, a class in which we read, um, middle passage by Charles Johnson. Yeah. I, and, I figured uh, you might bring this up. Yeah. Yeah. In, 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 in the last, um, 
Uh, I, I remember how she characterized the ending to the book. She's like, oh, look, like he went to this, like, you know, he went on the, the middle passage trip and he saw all these crazy things. But in the end of the ending of the book, he just comes back to th- this girl that he abandoned. Suddenly she's thin again and they get married and they have sex and they live happily ever after like a fairy tale. When clearly what happens at the end of the book is they can't even have sex because no. he's so, you know, affected by his experiences it doesn't matter to him that suddenly this fat girl that he promised to marry is now like really, you know, thin and beautiful. Um, uh, none of this matters, right? He, you know, he just can't uh, uh, bring himself to do anything. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. a fairy tale. Uh, and, and, and same thing here, right? You have this kind of, you know, uh, it, it's like kind of like a sick consummation that you, you, you don't even get to locate precisely in time because on some level it doesn't even matter. Yeah. Right. And, and imagine like if, if middle passage ended with like exactly what the professor said, uh, a fairy tale way, like she literally said it ended in a cliche and she was celebrating it. Um, when in fact, the reason why it works is the exact opposite of what she was stating. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, but, but it, it, this is an ex- this is like a Charles Johnson touch in that way. Like how can we talk about sex in a way that's not just like boring and trite and what everybody else does. Um, and, 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 uh, uh, Johnson said, uh, we're, we're just gonna, you know, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna turn this into a thing where these, these characters literally cannot have sex. Uh, mm-hmm. uh Williams is saying, uh, we're not even going to give you a specific moment in time and you're only going to get this like drowsy reverie as, as any indication that there was any kind of sex anytime. Right. Yeah. Nice call out on middle passage. Cause I thought of that moment mm-hmm. in the final chapter as well yeah uh, that wasn't even the show that was interesting yeah yeah nice very I'm nice. glad i'm glad um uh what, what's so, so then it, yeah oh, oh, it I mean, do, you on. Wanna, do you want to say anything about like edith so far because uh i'm not sure where the rest of these quotes are but um maybe still in the same yeah. kind of general vicinity oh, oh oh well you already mentioned this so let's let's stick with that you said something about um like a stereotypical male female argument when they're yeah when when like Edith decides to have a baby I'm not sure if you want to read uh, that quote um, it's eighty two to eighty three when when Edith makes a decision right not not him yeah I I can read that quick so uh, starts page eighty two the decision came suddenly and without apparent source so that when she made the announcement one morning at breakfast, only a few minutes before William had to leave for his first class, she spoke almost with surprise as if she had made a discovery. What, William said, what did you say? I want a baby, Edith said. I think I want to have a baby. She was nibbling a piece of toast. She wiped her lips at the corner of a napkin and smiled fixedly. Don't you think we ought to have one, she asked. We've been married for nearly three years. Of course. William said. He set his cup down in its saucer with great care. He did not look at her. Are you sure? We've never talked about it. I wouldn't want you to. Oh, yes, she said. I'm quite sure. I think we ought to have a child. William looked at his watch. I'm late. I wish we had more time to talk. I want you to be sure. A small frown came between her eyes. I told you I was sure. Don't you want one? Why do you keep asking me? I don't want to talk about it anymore. All right, William said. He sat looking at her for a moment. I've got to go. But he did not move. Then awkwardly, he put his hand over her long fingers that rested on the tablecloth and kept it there until she moved her hand away. He got up from the table and edged around her, almost shyly. 
and gathered his books and papers. As she always did, Edith came into the living room to wait for him to leave. He kissed her on the cheek, something he had not done for a long while. At the door, he turned and said, I'm, I'm glad you want a child, Edith. I know that in some ways our marriage has been a disappointment to you. I hope this will make a difference between us. Yes, Edith said. You'll be late for your class. You'd better hurry. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, like, what were your impressions when you first read that? Well, it, it seems in character for Edith. Mm-hmm. That was my initial thought was, I, I guess in a way, it's kind of predictable that they would have a child or you just get the sense that that's something that's going to come up eventually. Mm-hmm. And that this would be the way Edith would go about it. There wouldn't be any kind of uh, any kind of warmth to it. There would be a, a declamatory stance in a way. And she's, for better or worse, the way Williams characterizes her, she's just so stubborn when when she decides to dig in on things. Mm-hmm. And so um, similar, one of the, the things that occurred to me was that this was a similar kind of moment to Finch's guilt tripping of Stoner for not going mm-hmm. to war. So she brings this to him more or less says, this is what I want. And, and, and I would have thought you'd want the same thing. And, and he doesn't say no, he says yes, but she can tell that he's hesitant. And then he has this admission. Yeah, I know our marriage has been a disappointment to you. Maybe that, I, I thought that phrasing was great. I, I kind of love the line when he just says, I hope this will make a difference between us. Mm-hmm. And her response, doesn't, yes, doesn't really, you'll be late for class. Right. Yes. So she confirms it with one word and then mm-hmm. carry on, you know, you'll be late for class, but just that it, it's so bleak, you know, I hope yeah. this will make a difference between us. And he doesn't say what kind positive, negative, otherwise it's just, they both know this. And so whether she's thinking we have to assume from Edith with what we know so far that she's not wanting a child because she hopes it's going to rekindle a flame between her mm-hmm. and Stoner. She just wants it because She's just whimsical, right? Um, yeah, it's at her whim or she's bored and yeah. this is what I want to do and what we should do. Maybe this will make life interesting again uh, kind of yeah. way. There's no discussion about what kind of parents they might be together and, and whether they should do this when mm-hmm. obviously their marriage is already failing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, and, and one thing that I think we should add, add at this point, uh, you know, we did say that uh, we don't necessarily view William Stoner as a, as a saint here, but so far, like I think this is the first like quoted interaction uh, between them that we gave to the viewers. Um, clearly like he's, he's interested in having a good functional, happy marriage, right. With his wife mm-hmm. um, throughout the book, like it, it you know, there, there's a point where he's, He's constantly giving little gifts. He's like taking her on, on, you know, picnics. He's, he's trying to do all these like romantic things to, you know, get her to talk more, get her to open up, get her to just, you know, uh, uh, she seems to have this kind of like, you know, ongoing, uh, low grade, uh, depression over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, he, 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 uh, to the extent that he is a saint, like, especially, you know, even, you know, t- to the birth of his child, like he's, he 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 seems to be taking on a lot of responsibility for another person's happiness, right? And we could say that it's foolish, right? right. We could say that it's cl- like this is like the classic fucking you know uh, delusion when you're like 
I hope this makes a difference between us, um, you know, having yeah. a child. Like this is a, and, and uh, one thing I'll also say about the scene is, um, so I think the way you characterize it is apt and I agree that it's a good scene, but uh, I, I had a, I had already at this point in the book started worrying a little bit, like in terms of like, okay, will this be truly a great novel? Or will it have like, you know, the flaws and, you know, maybe the cult classic isn't totally justified in, in the way uh, that that people say that it is. And one of the problems was, like I said earlier, was like Edith's character yeah. here, you know, th this interaction, it's very, very, uh, I said in the show notes, very stereotypically male, female, right? Like, I, I yeah. mean, you, you've, you've seen something like this, like in, in books or in movies before, right? A small frown came between her eyes. I told you I was sure. Don't you want one? Why do you keep asking me? I don't want to talk about it anymore, right? This is very similar to um, uh, the argument that uh, Woody Allen's character has. I think his name's Gabe. Yeah, Gabe in uh, Husbands and Wives uh, with uh, Judy, which is the Mia Farrow character where, you know, she says, I think I want a baby. Um, and he's like, what? Are you sure? He's like, yes, I'm sure. Why don't you want one? Are you just trying to be like, you know, the philosopher again where you say, oh, bringing human beings into this world is just cruel because there's so much suffering that's just all bullshit right so she's a more kind of educated version i guess of uh, uh the edith character and much more kind of sensual in the sense that she's always after what she wants even like new you know new partners um mm -hmm. outside of the scope of her marriage but you know it just struck me as uh when i read the scene that uh okay i know where this is going and it's not going to be anywhere good and Edith's character thus far, she seems to be a very kind of stereotypical frigid woman, right? To the yeah. extent that is like a literary trope or whatever. We have uh, a frigid woman in the form of Judy. By the way, have you read, have you seen that movie? I don't want to just keep talking about it if it's... Uh... No, I, I should have told you, I haven't seen it, but okay. go, go on with whatever okay, comments so, you want yeah, to make. So, so, I just won't be able to interject yeah. much. But so, so, so Husbands and Wives uh, famously is uh, uh, the last uh, film that uh, uh, Woody Allen did with um, Mia Farrow. That was in 1991, I believe, or 92 is when the movie was released. Um, and, uh, it, it's interesting because like they, they already had like, you know, their relationship was crumbling. I'm not sure if this was, uh, immediately after or during, you know, the, uh, uh Dylan Farrow accusations in the mouth of Mia Farrow, right? Dylan at the time was not making those accusations. It was, you know, uh, at, at, uh, Mia Farrow's, uh, 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 wording, right? She, she was the one that went public with that. Um, and, uh, people would ask him, like, how can you be working with Mia Farrow under these circumstances? Like, I'm just making a movie and I want to make it a good movie. But the, the character that he wrote in, in Judy, right, played by Mia Farrow, she is one of his most, like, evil and i'm not sure if i'd use the word evil but but definitely destructive very very mm -hmm. much an emotional vampire um doing these kinds of arguments that we just read uh in you know uh, with uh with with uh, uh gabe um and you know saying like you know don't you want a baby um and just like manipulating you know uh him to essentially get whatever that she wants but that that character struck me as absolutely human and real because we saw her in so many situations where she is kind of like more humanized. We saw her even in her kind of, you know, flirtation scenes with, uh, uh, I forget the, the, the actor's name, 
Uh, but ultimately, he, she ends up with somebody else that, that she's working with. Um, and you see these kinds of like flirtation scenes and you see her as a, as a true kind of human being there, even if she is so unlikable. Uh, she, she's mm -hmm. not a caricature. But uh, when I read the scene, um, I, I was starting to feel like, OK, so we have a very kind of feminine caricature. Here we have a kind of amping up of a, of a feminine caricature, even if it, it's well written. How is this going to go? And of course, uh, you already mentioned how like they have this, you know, this like a uh, month or couple months of passion when she decides to have a child. Um, and uh, 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 when I read that part, I remember just kind of cringing and thinking like, this is well written, but this is not necessarily very good art. Um, uh, I've been talking a lot. I'm not sure if you want to read that quote. It's 83 to uh, 84. When she's, well, it's just continuing where we left off. Like when she like sees herself in the mirror and mm -hmm. she's, you know, behaving in a, a, I don't want to say a stereotypically feminine way, but a stereotypically, I am a woman with tons of sexual power sort of mm -hmm. way. And I'm going to admire myself uh, right before I do this thing where I give into my animalistic womanly whims where I have a child and I'm going to be this crazy sex, you know, uh, driven lunatic during this, you know, short period of time. Um, I'm not sure if you want to read that or if I should just keep going. Yeah, I, I can read it real quick. Yeah. So this is, this is right after the you'd better hurry line yeah. for stoner going to class. So after he had gone, Edith remained for some minutes in the center of the room, staring at the closed door, as if trying to remember something. Then she moved restlessly across the floor, walking from one place to another, moving within her clothing as if she could not endure its rustling and shifting upon her flesh. She unbuttoned her stiff gray taffeta morning robe and let it drop to the floor. She crossed her arms over her breasts and hugged herself, kneading the flesh of her upper arms through her thin flannel nightgown. Again, she paused in her moving and walked purposefully into the tiny bedroom and opened a closet door, upon the inside of which hung a full-length mirror. She adjusted the mirror to the light and stood back from it, inspecting the long, thin figure in the straight blue nightgown that it reflected. Without moving her eyes from the mirror, she unbuttoned the top of her gown and pulled it up from her body and over her head so that she stood naked in the morning light. She wadded the nightgown and threw it in the closet. Then she turned about before the mirror, inspecting the body as if it belonged to someone else. She passed her hands over her small, drooping breasts and let her hands go lightly down her long waist and over her flat belly. She moved away from the mirror and went to the bed, which was still unmade. She pulled the covers off, folded them carelessly, and put them in the closet. She smoothed the sheet on the bed and lay there on her back, her legs straight and her arms at her side. Unblinking and motionless, she stared up at the ceiling and waited through the morning and the long afternoon. Um, and and uh, I just think the next paragraph is kind of funny, uh, not maybe necessarily for the reasons that John Williams uh, wrote it, but when William Stoner got home that evening, it was nearly dark, but no light came from the second floor windows. Vaguely apprehensive, he went up the stairs and flipped the living room light on. The room was empty. He called Edith. Um, I, I just, I just <laughs> laughed when I read that. Cause it's kind of like, uh, okay. When she starts doing this, I sort of knew exactly where this was going. She was going to mm -hmm. give into these, like, you know, stereotypical womanly, like animalistic passions, like, right. You know, like, you know, like she, she's like, she's like, you know, a woman in heat. 
Yeah. Um, and the fact that, you know, like we have this like naive character, Edith, right? Before like she essentially, <laughs> you know, jumps on him. And I also knew that this would probably happen either one night or maybe a couple of months. And then they would go back to like a sexless marriage. Um, yeah. The, the fact that I saw that happening from far away, like, like you want to have some wiggle room, like some things that are predictable are good that they're predictable. They're meant to be predictable. They sort of add something that way. But I mean, thus, like, but from a purely kind of characterization standpoint, we don't have any huge, truly human qualities in her thus far. We have that preceding conversation, which is like a very stereotypical male-female argument. And now we have this thing where she decides to have a child and she's like essentially fondling herself and, you know, getting all, you know, passionate, animalistic under this context. Um, I just had this like very negative response. Uh, not that it was like bad. I mean, it wasn't badly written or anything, but uh, uh, in context, like it's not... Uh, a good scene, you know, as art, right? Because you see this coming from far away. You see where this is going. Uh, and, and you're not adding anything to this character. You're just kind of, you know, you're, you're expanding the character, right? You're not chipping away the character by giving human qualities. You're just expanding it by giving, you know, additional layers to, well, how can we make this caricature more caricatured in the sexual arena? Okay, let's do it like this. Um, you know, mm -hmm. so uh, I'm not sure, like, did you, did you have like that same negative response or, or, or not? Yeah, it, it maybe wasn't quite as strong as what you're mentioning, but I did feel as though, uh, while, while the writing was good and I even highlighted at least one of those paragraphs in there just yeah. for, for good writing, um, and kind of poetic moments in a way, um, you do feel that he could have Williams could have done better by taking perhaps a bit more of the kind of approach he did with their virginity and mm. their sex life yeah, exactly. that we just talked about a few minutes ago, right? So leave leave it more vague, leave it more human, make it mm -hmm. something that, that maybe we haven't seen exactly play out before. Uh and and and, and that probably would have been a better choice. Yeah. 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 Um yeah, so uh, as far as the Edith character, I don't have much else to say um, other than just overall not very human-like. She doesn't seem to have too much of a purpose other than, you know, uh, if you want to uh, call this guy a saint, you know, how can we throw all these, like, personal evils and, like, sociopathic behaviors, you know, on a husband and see how much he could take? Uh, like, beyond that, I don't really see too much purpose to her character, honestly. Yeah, it's kind of tough because while Williams paints her as um, like this this stereotypically you know shrewish and and at her worst psychotic uh, female, but then like doesn't really give her any re redeeming qualities. She's just mm. she's just this way and worse all throughout. Yeah, uh, you know he. Stoner is 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 more molded. There's more dimensionality to him, and so he, you know, Williams would have done better to, uh, you know, to to give her at least a, maybe a few positive traits or mm -hmm. something. I mean, maybe the most that you can say is uh, she she does have these at least interests or inclinations toward the arts. She mm -hmm. played piano when she was younger, and she revitalizes that interest later. She takes an interest in sculpture and painting for a while and it's another moment in the book where it's it's kind of 
like it, it's frustrating to read because if you think about this happening in real life, of course, it's frustrating where she basically just moves Stoner out of his study that he's mm-hmm. spent years uh, building up and having as his, you know, one of his personal spaces that he can really do things. And it enjoys. happens so fast, right? Yeah. Like he builds it up for years, but it, he's like, okay, you want to move me out? Fine. And then within a day, it's like, it's done. Right. right. And, and that's like one of the most frustrating moments in the book I found as a reader toward him as well. Cause it's like, okay, man, like if at some point you're going to push back, mm-hmm. pick something like decide on some ground to stand up. This is like a core part of your personhood. And it's also the space where he relates the best to his daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they have their best moments together in that study and he allows that to be undone and, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But um, you know, so she like, it's just, it's so negative. Like the, the reader dislikes her so much because she just basically kicks him out of there to go presumably make some shitty, you know, arts and crafts kind of sculptures or something like we're, we're never told that there's any promise mm-hmm. to what she's doing. She's just mm-hmm. kind of doing it to, uh, to be obnoxious to him. And mm-hmm. I mean, I said in my comments to you, and this is one of the next you know key plot points that happens is, stoner's affair with Catherine driscoll mm-hmm. and maybe that you know the best you can say for edith is that she clearly is aware of that for quite some time but lets it carry on and we're, we don't we're not really privy to whether she's doing that to eventually have yet again a gotcha moment with bill and like oh you thought i didn't know about that like I, i'm better than you i'm so much smarter than you of course i knew the whole time you silly boy kind of thing which is mm-hmm. sort of how it ends up happening but um you know, maybe you can give her some points for just perhaps understanding that, that, that like he needed that kind of companionship or something and letting it go on. And, cause, cause that is the one thing I'll say is I expected Edith to intervene in his relationship with Catherine much earlier and there mm-hmm. to be some kind of, mm-hmm. you know, way that she was going to blackmail him or, or make his life even more miserable mm-hmm. by outing their relationship publicly or something which she doesn't do so that's a bit surprising almost based on her yeah. character but anyway uh, i feel like i'm she, rambling she, she, a little yeah, bit she, now she, she also has like uh some kind of more subtle moments i guess uh, near the end of the book where uh it seems you know at some point they're kind of you know they're they're fighting uh and this conflict just kind of um I'm not sure if I'd say that that it ends, but there is a kind of like, at least like a temporary truce, especially at the point where you know he he's uh, uh, where uh, William Stoner is is dying. Um, yeah. There's a more kind of like I don't I don't want to say mutual understanding because if there is a mutual understanding, we don't you as a reader, right? I mean, you as a reader are supposed to count in, in this equation, but you as a reader never get the sense of. Mm-hmm what exactly this new mutual understanding is based on. And I think John Williams uh, uh, in writing this book, he sort of wanted it both ways in the sense that he wants there to be this kind of character arc where there is a kind of mutual, you know, understanding there's a mutual growth uh, uh, and and affection over time. Just like in, uh, I'm going to reread this book um, again soon. uh, Tanizaki's uh, Prefer Nettles, one of my favorite novels. Um, and in it, there's this kind of uh, idea where uh, even if you marry without love, there is this kind of uh, eventually this affection that that's cultivated and that's developed. And John Williams wanted to sort of show that. But um, 
clearly maybe something between the two of them did transpire, but you as the reader who's supposed to count here, uh, you never get to see it, right? And I think that's a problem. You never get to see the basis for the, you know, uh, any kind, and you know, it's not, these are major changes anyway. She's still more or less the same character, but to the extent that there are changes, uh, uh, given the fact that she is so non-human to begin with, leaving all of that purely to implication, it just doesn't really work, right? That you, you could leave, you could leave things to implication where you have, you know, enough infrastructure, enough foundation that the reader could logically, you know, make these kinds of connections. But, um, you know, I, I think he sort of wanted there to be this mystery, but also pretend that part of the mystery was resolved. And it, 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 that part didn't really work for me. Yeah, agreed. I, maybe we're left to insinuate that when their daughter Grace gets pregnant and has a grandchild, that there's some kind of healing, whether spoken or unspoken, between Bill and Edith that happens mm -hmm. maybe in that phase of life and they're both aging and presumably reflecting on their life together to this point. And you know, now our, our daughter has a, an unplanned pregnancy, an unplanned grandchild, which Stoner hardly ever sees. It's, mm -hmm. it's almost as though the, the child doesn't exist, the grandchild yeah. uh, in his life. Yeah. And so we have to assume there's at least some kind of pain with that and, mm -hmm. and, and maybe they reconcile a few things between themselves, but, but you're right. We, we don't know. It's never, it's never yeah. uh, outlined or, or sketched as a scene or series of scenes for us. So, yeah. And, you know, uh, another yeah. level, uh, w one thing perhaps could be is like, you know, grace becomes an alcoholic, yes. uh, uh, grace. Um, by the way, is, is Edith an alcoholic? I don't think so. Right. No, no. Yeah. But yeah. I think, I think maybe, maybe she smokes, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but but yeah, uh, uh, Grace becomes an alcoholic, and it's kind of like, you know, you could be you know uh, sociopathic as as Edith is, but you know perhaps if you do see your own daughter uh, just being this uh, just complete shell of a human being and getting you know more and more shell like as as time goes on, uh, perhaps perhaps that will have an effect. But again, we get so little of that, and we get so little of the context surrounding that, that it's, it's, it just feels a little bit forced, right? That, you know, now, now it's time to uh, kind of reconcile based on, you know, um, uh, based on something that's not sketched out enough, basically. Um, right. Is what I would say. Uh, it, it seems like you uh, had things to say about uh, Catherine Driscoll. So, so mm -hmm. where are the part of the book where, um, you know, so they have a uh, child grace, uh, she's born, uh, it seems like, you know, William Stoner, again, to the extent that he is uh, a saint, uh, he is very, um, like, he's very doting on, on his daughter. He clearly loves her. He clearly, yeah. you know, even if he's busy, he makes as much time as he can to just always spend time with her. Um, and, and uh, 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 you know, e Edith notices this love and being this kind of, you know, kind of evil character that she is. Um, she's just there to, as always, like, you know, separate the two. Um, and, uh, eventually we get to, you know, like Grace go, grows up, she, uh, leaves the home and, um, uh, you know, like, like it's William Stoner, like he's kind of like, uh, left behind and he's thinking what to do next. And there's this, uh, student, right. A, a student of his that he eventually, uh, falls in love with and, and she falls in love with him. 
and they have this uh, they they have this uh, affair, and it's an affair that you could tell is based on much more mutual recognition, mutual respect, mutual love and, and understanding, right? Because you know she's a, she's a student. Uh, first of all, it's it's not very common to to find women that are kind of like. Uh, I think she was doing a paper on, you know, uh, Latin literature in relation to Shakespeare, right? Which mm-hmm. is kind of like the 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 big thing that that interests um, uh, Stoner. Uh, yeah. So she she's already like uh, to the extent that Edith is a caricature, she's kind of you know the the opposite as a, a kind of we're like in the 1930s now, I think like a 1930s or whatever, uh, woman that, um, you know, uh, has like something going on mentally. Right. It, it looked positive, right? Like she, right. she's, she's thinking about the world. She's thinking about life and she sees the same kind of passions in, in stone. Right. Which is why they, they have this relationship to begin with. Um, I'm not sure if you had anything else to say. I don't have too much to say about her character. Yeah. I think one of the, other things I did want to mention about Catherine's character is that we're similar to Stoner's character. And I guess we have to assume that, uh, that Williams was intentional with this. Like you said, we, we know vaguely what her thesis is about or what her paper is about. She's in a doctoral program and, and everything else. And yet we, we don't, we don't know much other than that. We don't really know her views on art. We, Mm -hmm. there's no, drilling down on it. She's, she's not an artist, same as Stoner is not an artist. Like Mm -hmm. never are we told that that Stoner actually writes a poem of his own through this whole book or anything. Right. And, and we don't really know what his views are on the arts. And and there's no, there's no scenes of him teaching in a classroom where we get some kind of monologue Mm -hmm. uh, in depth. I mean, there's little snippets, but, but truly in depth about if he's going to make an assertion about the arts or contradict someone else about the arts. So one of the key scenes it sets up is there's a student, Charles Walker, who comes into his seminar class that, that Catherine Driscoll is also in. And this is before there's anything between Stoner and Driscoll, like a year before, because uh, this all kind of happens and Walker's in the class and he's, uh, he's, he's just a different kind of student and isn't really by the book. He seems to kind of have his own ideas about things and he contradicts Catherine on some of her posits. And, and then, you know, basically Stoner gets kind of riled up about it and feels like he was unfair to her and starts to probably treat Walker unfairly in certain Mm -hmm. ways. And it's pretty obvious he's showing favoritism toward Catherine. And so uh, this whole, this whole situation erupts really where stoner gets himself in a lot of hot water with the university because walker is a favorite student of holly lomax holland lomax who had become a professor years before is pretty well respected for his apparent brilliance again we're, we're never told same with finch right we're never mm-hmm. actually told what these people believe mm-hmm. uh, and think about the arts they're just in the english department teaching so so who knows we have to kind of assume that it's mostly by the book, but apparently Lomax had some interesting ideas of his own when he was an associate professor and rose through the ranks and whatever. And the chairmanship is eventually given to him by Finch rather than by Stoner. And he really likes Charles Walker and see they're both these, uh, again, maybe in a way like caricatured somewhat, right? Where mm-hmm. they're both like kind of deformed physically. So they're like the ugly, but smart avant-garde ish, mm-hmm. you know, guys in the department with, edgy ideas about literature or whatever. And so uh, Walker wants to continue on in, in the 
doctoral program and Stoner is sitting on the panel to evaluate him and eviscerates him basically. Mm. And so he does have this one moment of deciding, you know, in addition to defending Catherine against him in the seminar, he then decides to really put him on the, the stand in this, in this panel and outs him as basically someone who doesn't, hasn't really covered any of like the essentials uh, or doesn't at least know them to the point where he can recite mm-hmm. it offhand with like more or less just facts about the mm-hmm. history of literature is, is kind of what he gets quizzed on. So it's stuff that anybody can learn. And, and you, you as a reader, if you have any kind of artistic bent yourself are kind of frustrated by this because it's like Williams seems to be in a way like putting stoner in the right in mm-hmm. this. And, and I, th- I think he also yeah. is critical of him in ways too. But, but in this moment, this is a, a pretty big moment for him to really come out of his shell and speak out against somebody instead of being passive. Mm-hmm. And, and yet all he's asking him is just like facts and figures and people and theories. Yeah. And so Walker can't do it. He, he is exposed mm-hmm. as a fraud of sorts. Uh, and, and then, you know, because I guess the recommendation has to be unanimous for him to continue in the department. Stoner pretty much blocks him from being able to go on. And then it becomes this whole fallout for years then between Stoner and Gordon Finch, who's trying to help defend him still, but Lomax and now Finch is, is in between the two of them and a middleman yeah. and, and whatever. So, um, you know, it, it then happens where a little ways down the road, Catherine Driscoll decides to bring her paper back to Stoner to evaluate some time later. She's still going on with it. He views it positively in and of itself because he hadn't really seemingly thought of her sexually in any way, like initially. Mm-hmm. And then he gets kind of switched on by this person that he recognizes mm-hmm. as a kindred spirit of sorts, like you said. So mm-hmm. that's when their affair begins is he becomes an advisor to her, or it's at least under those auspices. He starts visiting her all the time to give her tips on her paper. Doesn't know if his love is unrequited or not. She becomes ill and then admits to him like the reason I'm ill is because you haven't come around when he was just trying to not basically be a creep, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cause he's like, ah, maybe I should back off. Like I'm getting mm-hmm. a little too deep here. Um, and then she's like, you know, you haven't come around and I want to be with you. And then like, you know, there's this coming together and, and they, you know, obviously mm-hmm. uh, they have sex and start their affair and they're also just interested in each other as people and physically and so on. So uh, that's really the story with Catherine, you know, in terms of her character, like the reader does like her. I liked her, you know, it's like, Oh, someone that, uh, that stoner can relate to. Like here's, here's somebody Mm -hmm. that he can actually speak with about his interests. And they also just seem to have a, an understanding of one another uh, in terms of their personhood that he's never had with Edith. Mm -hmm. So you, by this time in the novel, you kind of want that for him. So you're glad that it's coming around. And, and, and really I found myself not, um, you know, like not really even necessarily perceiving him as doing much wrong by having this affair, right. If, you know, typically affairs are this. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's essentially a non-functional, uh, marriage, right. This yeah. is a, a psychopathic, uh, woman that he's involved with. Um, you know, yeah. uh, uh, I, I, I get there are rules surrounding these uh, things that ought to be followed, right. Things like faithfulness and whatnot, but, uh, uh, you know, some of these rules like really don't apply in these like really kind of like extreme 
situations like this is i mean this is a yeah. this is a woman that is not only just classically frigid but also like literally like rips his daughter away from him not yep. because she's gonna raise her better right maybe she did, does delude herself into into thinking that but uh you know she she rips uh his daughter away and who knows like i i definitely got the sense that had he been single right if you were like a single father and he just had grace with him she probably would would not have turned out um in the way that she did right right uh you know uh because because you you see flashes of much more of stoner than of edith in her early childhood but when you know she gets taken away essentially um and, and has to spend all her time with edith uh that kind of goes out the window um so uh, anyway uh, uh, you, you mentioned something uh, interesting that, that I was thinking about, like, yeah, like you, you don't really get, uh, anybody's like true, um, artistic input here. Like, uh, first of all, uh, when, um, William Stoner decides to become a professor, right. When he has this like awakening, uh, it was what it was over, what was like Shakespeare sonnet number 77, yeah. Uh, and it's Come not on. like, like, it's not, um, like, it's not, uh, it's not his worst on it, but it's also definitely not his best on it. It's like a more kind of like a, one of the more kind of, you know, better in the middle sonnets. Um, and, but he's moved by that for whatever reason. Okay. So we know that his evaluation when it comes to that sonnet is that it's good writing, but when you see him kind of like slouched over, like translating Latin, um or you know reading new books like you never ever ever get to hear his opinions on any broader issues and you know when he questions charles walker um yeah it's like very kind of kind of you know didactic nitpicky mm -hmm. sort of questions that i guess like from a purely scholarly perspective um they ought to be answered because this is what scholars do right they they nitpick over these kinds of things but uh you know you're left wondering well does charles walker or lomax know anything deeper about literature and my sense actually about the reason why i'm not so sym sympathetic to characters like lomax or, or walker and why I don't really find uh, Stoner's treatment of uh, these characters unfair is uh, it's true that Stoner probably has an overly didactic and just a generally you know, lack of understanding of the arts, fine. But um, I, I don't see anything that, that Walker or Lomax say that indicates to me that they would do any better. It's true right. that they may be more out of the box thinkers, but it's not out of the box thinking that necessarily leads anywhere, right? Um, so I, right. so I, so uh, when Charles Walker is like in, in his classes, uh, starts like interrupting, you know, I just view it as like, just the, just silly interruptions. And I remember I was waiting like, okay, so Charles Walker is like, uh, going to be, you know, maybe like a major character for the next few pages, at least. I wonder if this is going to be the part where John Williams critiques William Stoner, by having this graduate student expose Stoner as someone that himself doesn't really get things. But you don't get that and you don't get the opposite. You don't get any understanding uh, that, these, that these other characters have any deeper understanding. And you also don't really get that through Catherine Driscoll. Like um, uh, right. uh, the, the, the paper that she does, and ultimately I think this is what, what her book, right, that comes out, uh, near the end of the book, uh, uh, what it's about. The subject is this grammarian, Donatus. Um, and 
like his potential kind of influences on Shakespeare, which first of all, just on the face of it, just strikes me as completely irrelevant, right? That you, that, that's, not, that's not a real artistic question. Now, it might be a scholarly question. Uh, and, 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 you know, uh, these people might be good scholars in that regard, but I get the feeling that if you start saying things like, I wonder what the relationship between Shakespeare and the classic Latin grammarians that he probably never even read is, uh, like, like, I guess you, you could go and, and, and discuss that question. You could, you could study it, you know, uh, to the extent that you want to, but, it strikes me as kind of missing the point. So it sort of makes sense to me that uh, Stoner and Driscoll uh, see kindred sp spirits in one another. Mm -hmm. um, but you also don't like, okay, so if, if, if he's supposed to be a saint, right? Again, we're left with this question of where does John, where's John Williams like here? Like, is he critiquing the two of them here in any way? Like, what does this mean? What about the fact that we don't get a, get any real sense of, what they think about the arts. We don't really get any, any opinions out of them. This is this thing that is supposed to be completely controlling their lives, but you don't, you don't really understand why. Um, and you don't get true examples of such. You just see examples of them working at it for whatever reason. You never really get the reason. You don't really get the why. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah, th th that's an interesting connection between the two. Uh, but again, um, uh, as an artistic document uh, for a book like this, you have to answer where is John Williams in, in all this exactly? Where does he stand in relation to these critiques in relation to my critique? Um, so if he is just kind of accepting uh, William Stoner as purely a saint that knows all this stuff about art and why doesn't the world just accept him? You know, that's not, um, uh, I, I don't think that makes for uh, a ton, tons of insight, although there are tons of insights in the book. They tend to be about other things, which is the irony, right? Um, right. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with your assessment there. Um, so, I mean, then, it, then at this point, just to kind of, we're getting close to, to wrapping up the, the chronology of the book. So he and, and Driscoll have this affair. It ends up coming to an end, more or less because he's going to be blackmailed by Lomax, who's still resentful mm -hmm. decades later about Stoner's treatment of, of favored student Charles Walker and... Um, and all these kind of things. And so, you know, like essentially Stoner makes this immediate decision that he just to protect himself and to protect Catherine, they, they need to stop seeing one another. And so it's mm -hmm. another one of those moments in the book where uh, you, you do, you do wonder what he's going to decide to do here. Is he going to fight for this relationship and decide to kind of against the run of his character, just, be defiant and carry it on when it's it's not wanted and just you know devil may care whatever happens to me happens to me this is the one thing in my life that has uh you know really like fulfilled me mm -hmm. in a long time uh but you know he just decides not to do that and and catherine seems either to to have reached the same decision or to understand why he's making it and just mm -hmm. fades away into into the background and we don't hear from her again. Their parting is very uh, impersonal almost. There's, it just, it's just mm -hmm. passing ships in the night all of a sudden and, and she's gone. 
and we're kind of back to to stoner and and so then he pours himself really strongly into his work he goes through this period of of a final revitalize, revitalization of sorts where he's he's really really engaged in teaching he decides that he doesn't want to be around edith he doesn't want to be at home he's he's going to just teach with all his might basically and so he he does build up a little bit of esteem for once in the department and also among students especially who recognize this new passion and it seems like he feeds on that so he's excited and they're excited about him and it just it perpetuates mm -hmm. itself for a while and he goes through a, a pretty good period in his life at least professionally but then uh, eventually he he becomes ill and so as with everything else he he just grimly accepts that he's not well he goes in for a for an exam and and the doctor at first seems to indicate that maybe they can treat his cancer and you learn pretty quickly that it's it's spread and mm -hmm. he's going to die there's really nothing they can do about it with the current medicine available so he he starts preparing to die mm -hmm. and uh, he he also i forget exactly i mean is he is he going to go through a forced retirement basically like lomax wants him out yeah and at first he's defiant and is like no i'm, I'm definitely yeah, he, yeah he wasn't going to do it at first but then after this like he just yeah has to he's yeah. he says he's going to take the, the additional two-year option that he has yeah. and teach till 67 because fuck him more or less yeah uh, but then decides to to back away from that with his illness and get his affairs in order yeah. sort of thing so that's that's pretty much what happens you know he and finch have a, a couple more moments together of Finch once again playing the bill. Why wouldn't you have told me? And I, I can't believe that it's come mm -hmm. to this. And you do get maybe a, a sense of some sincerity there on Finch's part. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, now this thorn in his side with having to defend Stoner against Lomax is going to go away. So presumably based on Finch's prior character, mm -hmm. he, he cares, but maybe not incredibly much. Mm -hmm. And so then there's kind of a funny moment where Stoner, obviously never one for socializing in parties, really, really doesn't want a retirement party, but they're going to force him to have one. And, and he's saying he's not going to do it. And then finally, as a, again, it seems like a bit of a fuck you to the department and to Lomax, mm -hmm. he decides to go and gives this really awkward, dry speech where he barely recognizes himself talking and is just, in a fog where he's vaguely aware of the surroundings and the people there and, and just doesn't really care much at all. Mm -hmm. And, and then he's bedridden, he goes home and, and starts this descent toward death. And I think there's some beautiful writing by Williams in, in mm -hmm. these moments. Well, and, we, we, and we should really focus on some of that. Cause I don't want, I don't want to start the discussion by saying, Oh, Hey, this is a very good book. People should definitely read it. And then it's like two hours, like critiquing, you know, uh, and it feels like a, yeah. a long nitpick. So l let's like get to some of the, you know, other like good stuff. Right. Um, yeah. Let's, let's pull out some good quotes because I, I think that there's definitely some, some beautiful passages, especially uh, toward this. And let me just see if there were any others from earlier that I, I wanted to, this passage here where he's learning of Sloan's death and it goes like this, the coroner announced heart failure as the cause of death, but William Stoner always felt that in a moment of anger and despair, Sloan had willed his heart to cease 
as if in a last mute gesture of love and contempt for a world that had betrayed him so profoundly that he could not endure it. And then skipping through to the, the bottom of page 89, he's talking to, uh, he's talking to Gordon. I don't know. All during the service, I kept thinking about Dave Masters, about Dave dying in France, and about old Sloan sitting there at his desk, dead two days, like they were the same kind of dying. So I just just those few lines, you know, that, that one really stuck with me, like they were the same kinds of dying. Um, uh, I thought that was a couple of nice passages there. Yeah, there, there, there were actually a couple of things um, related to uh death and dying, right? And, and trying to like differentiate one type of dying from another. Uh, I, mm-hmm. Probably here, um, if I go uh, quickly enough, I could probably find it. Um, so uh, when uh, he's thinking, you know, g- going back to this idea of death, when he's thinking about um, just dying in the battlefield, th- this is the way that John Williams uh, characterizes uh, Stoner's feelings here. His thoughts were much upon death that summer of 1918. The death of Masters had shocked him more than he wished to admit, and the first American casualty lists from Europe were beginning to be released. When he had thought of death before, he had thought of it either as a literary event or as the slow, quiet attrition of time against imperfect flesh. He had not thought of it as the explosion of violence upon a battlefield, as the gush of blood from a ruptured throat, He wondered at the difference between the two kinds of dying and what the difference meant. And he found growing in him some of that bitterness he had glimpsed once in the living heart of his friend, David Masters. Um, So, I mean, there's tons of like little like meditations uh, like like this on death and dying, right? Trying to find these distinctions. And, you know, it it sort of makes sense, uh, I guess, in a macro view of the book, because um, you as the reader, right, whether or not this is intentional on the part of Williams, um, you as a reader are constantly thinking like, well, what is the difference between uh, Stoner's life versus any other life? Did he mm-hmm. in fact fail? Did he in fact achieve something? Is the fact that he did something a little bit off the beaten path in a statistical sense of like actually becoming a professor, right? Interested in literature. Is that enough to say that there is like a life worth meaning? Um, and, and what is the distinction between this dying, the battlefield, other kinds of dying, the dying that, that stoner ultimately experiences, um, uh, uh, at the end of the book, um, you know, like what, what is all that about? So I, I found that uh, one of the kind of standout passages in the book as well, uh, when Sloan kind of like, I guess, confronts him and says like, you have to become a teacher, right? And and also, you know, I, I've uh, also kind of, you know, chiding, um, well, maybe not so much chiding Stoner, but but Sloan says, you know, I've seen this thing before with war, right? With people just kind of giving themselves into this frenzy. Uh, we must we must not allow ourselves to do that. So Stoner thinks about this conversation, and this is how it's characterized. For two days, Stoner did not meet his classes and did not speak to anyone he knew. He stayed in his small room, struggling with his decision, his decision to not go to war. His books and the quiet of his room surrounded him. Only rarely was he aware of the world outside his room, of the far murmur of shouting students, of the swift clatter of a buggy on the brick streets, and the flat chug of one of the dozen or so automobiles in town. He had never got in the habit of introspection, 
and he found the task of searching his motives a difficult and slightly distasteful one. He felt that he had little to offer to himself and that there was little within him which he could find. Um, and I, I, I found that to be a, a good passage, uh, mm -hmm. partly for the fact that, like, you know, this sort of tells you a lot about Stoner and is kind of like giving you glimpses of his future, right? Like, he's not willing to think about why he might be willing to to uh, do certain things or not do certain things. He's not willing to sort of confront his own uh, passive nature. Um, and again, to the extent that Williams truly believes that he wrote a character that is a kind of saint and ought to be treated as a saint, uh, you just kind of wonder, well, this this clearly is a critique of his entire being. And, you know, it's not a critique that necessarily can disappear by the time he gets married or by the time he has a child or by the time that he's dying. Uh, he is still, you know, that person that can't be too introspective. So, you know, to the extent that we keep wondering, well, where is John Williams himself, the author, in relation to all this? Whatever he might say, I guess, you know, in letters or whatever is one thing, but this does seem to be a critique of Stoner that kind of uh, can be said to stick to the very end. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And uh, just that he never got in the habit of introspection. I, I remember when I first read that, it was a bit surprising to hear that description and that characterization of him, because up until this point, based on what we know of him and what he's deciding to do, it seems as though he is capable of mm -hmm. introspection and, and, and is going through that process as he's thinking about, well, like, should I drop the agricultural studies and pursue yeah. literature and these kind of things? So, so for Williams to, uh, to just baldly characterize him that way is a bit surprising, but then there are instances later in the book where it seems like that plays out. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, you had another, I guess, a quote at, like after that point chronologically. Yeah, so the, the next one I was going to pull from was uh, page 108. So I know I'm jumping ahead here, but this is after his parents' death. Well, we, sh we should be ahead already. That's, that's why I didn't want to keep going back. So this yeah. is good. Yeah, so, good. so this is after his parents both die. You know, his dad dies first and then his mom shortly thereafter. And this is page 108, and I'll just I'll read through this paragraph. So he buried her beside her husband. After the services were over and the few mourners had gone, he stood alone in a cold November wind and looked at the two graves, one open to its burden and the other mounded and covered by a thin fuzz of grass. He turned on the bare treeless little plot that held others like his mother and father and looked across the flat land in the direction of the farm where he had been born, where his mother and father had spent their years. He thought of the cost exacted year after year by the soil, and it remained as it had been, a little more barren perhaps, a little more frugal of increase. Nothing had changed. Their lives had been expended in cheerless labor, their wills broken, their intelligences numbed. Now they were in the earth to which they had given their lives, and slowly, year by year, the earth would take them. Slowly the damp and rot would infest the pine boxes which held their bodies, and slowly it would touch their flesh, and finally it would consume the last vestiges of their substances, and they would become a meaningless part of that stubborn earth to which they had long ago given themselves. And so this was another passage that reading this description of, of his parents and their lives and 
you know, the, the, uh, according to Williams here the, and Stoner's reflection, that meaningless part, a meaningless part of that stubborn earth to which they long ago given themselves, you know, it's, um, it's then reflected in Stoner himself, right? In my show notes to you, I said, well, for Stoner, it's, it's as though the university is his farm. And this is where he tends to, to his, his crops, if you will, in a way, and, and it nourishes him. And yet there's, there are a lot of parallels between his life there and his parents' lives at the farm and the, the, the lack of um, cheer in a way, mm-hmm. and just the, the grim way through which they work on their respective occupations. Um, but I, I thought some of the phrases in that paragraph especially were, uh, were standouts and, and quite poetic. You know, it, it gives you also some, you know, some of his motivations, I guess. Uh, I mean, he, he's seen this for so long, right? Like, even if he can't become an artist, right? Which, uh, again, like from the very beginning, like if I, if I see somebody being affected by literature and it's changing their lives in some way, it makes me wonder, like, do they have any artistic impulses to go with it? Um, in this case, mm-hmm. the, the answer seems to be no. Uh, but you know, even so, like he did make this observation, right? He did see the fact that, you know, this was the life, not only of my parents, but the life of the parents, you know, before them and before them and before them. And this is, you know, the life of humanity for so long. Um, if I can't, you know, he never says, he never makes any comments about like, I wish I was an artist, but you know, you could imagine a a kind of, uh, thinking like if I can't be an artist, at least, I could give myself to these, you know, uh, higher pursuits, right? At least read something, at least at least do something so that the thing that makes me, you know, most human, which is my style of intelligence, like that, unlike my parents, does not have to go numb, right? I can, I can at least exercise it even if I don't have the ability to produce something from it of worth. I could at least constantly, you know, exercise it over and over and over again. Um, right. So yeah, uh, I, I I don't know. I actually I do remember re- reading this passage. It just uh, uh, dog-eared. I'm not sure why it wasn't dog-eared before. I feel kind of guilty that you know this whole thing is like full of dog ears and you know like yeah. o- like oftentimes like like Mine if uh, yeah like if yeah we do the same thing. Like you you, you do the dog ears. You do, you do the notes. I have like the macro notes at the front. I have like I plan out you know books yeah. or whatever you know highlighting um, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, but, 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 uh, I oftentimes feel kind of guilty if like, if you were to like point out like a quote, that's like good writing that if I were not to remember it, I'd be like, fuck, like I, you know, uh, this guy wrote this book and I'm reading through it and I must've been like, you know, thinking about, I must've been distracted enough that I didn't notice that. And I, you know, I didn't like respect the book. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, like, I mean, and, and, like, if you think about it, like, like with the kind of care, for example, when you write poetry, you know, you want people to understand and consider each line seriously. It's not just haphazardly there, right? So if you sort of like allow your, your, your mind to drift to such a way where an entire paragraph just kind of disappears out of a text that is a worthwhile paragraph, you did do some kind of disservice. Like you are guilty of something, right? Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, don't, don't be, don't be uh, easy on yourself in that way. So I felt like a little yeah. bit guilty that this wasn't dog eared anyway. Respect um, the book, Alex. Respect the book. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I mean, because, yeah, like, I, 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 if I write something, I want people to have that same consideration for me. Like, I have to give that con- consideration to others, right, when I engage in their, with their work. Um, yeah. Fair, fair enough. If only everyone were that hard on themselves as a reader. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, 
Uh, were there, I mean, there, there's, there's tons of quotes, like we could get, uh, we could skip uh, ahead to, to the end, right? Where s- some of the best yeah. poetic writing is at the end. So, um, I mean, if, if you want to take that, we could take that too. Yeah. So getting toward the end, I had a, I had one from page 243 and this, this is going back a little bit to what we talked about earlier, where we were saying, you know, Williams's decision to play Stoner's formative years in world war one and then uh, maybe the point I made about him, you know, going through this long suffering of World War One and World War Two in his lifetime, and so this is now World War Two coming to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this is you know December of 1941. So this is the paragraph on page 243. Five days before the marriage took place, which this is his daughter Grace's, you know, loveless marriage basically um, to the the man who got her pregnant. Five days before the marriage took place, the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor and William Stoner watched the ceremony with a mixture of feeling that he had not had before. Like many others who went through that time, he was gripped by what he could think of only as a numbness, though he knew it was a feeling compounded of emotions so deep and intense that they could not be acknowledged because they could not be lived with. It was the force of a public tragedy he felt a horror and a woe so all pervasive that private tragedies and personal misfortunes were removed to another state of being yet were intensified by the very vastness in which they took place as the poignancy of a lone grave might be intensified by a great desert surrounding it with a pity that was almost impersonal. He watched the sad little ritual of the marriage and was oddly moved by the passive indifferent beauty of his daughter's face and by the sullen desperation on the face of the young man. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how many parents would ever admit to these kind of feelings watching their child get married, you know, with a pity that was almost impersonally watched the sad little ritual Mm -hmm. of the marriage. And and I I love that line, the poignancy of a lone grave might be intensified by a great desert surrounding it. It's a great image. You know, I, I, Whenever I think of graves, I think of graveyards and crowded graves all together. But, you know, this conjures up some, you know, you're driving on a, on Route 66 or something in the middle of the desert and come across a grave that's just got nothing but low mm-hmm. desert hills around it and how devastating that is in a way. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the, this, uh, uh, now that I think about it, this actually, I do not even remember. Listen, there's something, there's a problem here. I do not even remember reading this, but, <laughs> but this is, this is actually one, you know, this, this, this really is one of the best passages in the, in the book. Um, like, uh, and not just like, you know, like th- th- this would be, I think one of the examples of like flat out, a uh, great writing, like when John, when uh, uh, John Williams gets gets to the very heights. This is, yeah. you know, this this is what it what it sounds like. Um, yeah, uh, I remember the impression that yeah, this is the, this was his feelings of uh, the, um, the 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 marriage of his daughter. But I don't, I didn't quite remember the specifics, which is again, it's a shame, right? This should have been dog eared. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah but- like like when, whenever like I have books where like the dog earring just kind of like suddenly stops a little bit. Right. Um, let me yeah. see. like, you're just wondering like, well, what? like, 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 like yeah, what, what happened there? Well, it's actually, it's, it's when I see it up here, it's less dog ear than on there, but um, I mean, it's more dog ear here than, than I saw in the, in the video. But um, you're just wondering like, did I just like fucking like, 
that I just like <laughs> zone out for uh, 20 pages. Um, cause you, you, you know, there's going to be examples of, of good writing, right. Um, uh, throughout. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and this passage struck me on a few different levels. Number one is that, uh, that, that this is his set of feelings and thoughts at the marriage of his daughter. It's just interesting. It's unique. Uh, it, it is something that is very stoner esque. Right. Um, and then also this, this admission again, that we were told earlier in the book, you know, stoner is not someone that ever took to introspection, quote unquote, mm -hmm. but here he is talking about emotions being compounded both publicly and privately, extremely intensely within himself. Mm -hmm. And we don't get hardly any outward displays of that through the whole book, you know, in his mm -hmm. entire life, uh, the, the pieces we're given here. So for this to at least be described to us that he is having these feelings. And again, maybe this is just a later in life, him and a lot mm -hmm. has happened now, uh, and so on, but still, uh, it, it is pretty powerful because this is striking late in the book. I mean, we're like mm -hmm. 30 pages to the end here, you know? So, uh, finally we're getting, we're getting shown stoners actual feelings about some things. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, and also, uh, I mean, a couple of interesting things, like, you know, the paragraph uh, right uh, preceding this, um, you know, we're, they're, talk they're setting up uh, the marriage, there's going to be a ceremony. Then uh, with the paragraph that you just read, uh, I mean, it starts with World War II. Um, the fact that I, I know that in terms of the time period, you know, it makes sense that chronologically the two would get connected because this is when his daughter was getting married. Like you have like, you know, no choices just when it happened. Uh, mm -hmm. But it, it, you get the sense that in Stoner's mind, the connection is not purely, you know, one by half stance or chronology. Uh, it's also one of the kind of, you know, uh, desperation that I see there. I see elsewhere, including in my life, my daughter's life, her, her coming future, right? This is, this is all, you know, in, in the same piece. Um, and uh, I, I mean, that's kind of like a, a unique way of, of framing it. There's this uh, movie, Blue Valentine. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you've seen it. Uh, no. The, a very good movie. It also has like a scene with like a marriage where clearly at the end, the two of them are getting married and they're just desperately unhappy. And they're mm -hmm. in a dysfunctional relationship, right? So, you know, to, to have a, a wedding day that looks like that, you know, that, that by itself is a bit, little bit of a novel, novel touch. Um, but, but also, uh, you know, you, you said that this doesn't jive very well necessarily with his, you know, uh, uh, alleged like lack of introspection. Um, you know, I, I wonder on some level, like whether whether that, you know, old Williams critique, right, from the beginning of the book, that Stoner is not one to introspect, like, it might still stand, like, even here, like, if you think about it in terms of, like, you know, not having introspection is not simply, I know absolutely nothing about my own uh, motives or about the motives of others around me or whatever. It could be as simple as I know these things, or at least I have, like, some idea of them, but... I choose to not indulge those feelings and those thoughts. I choose to sweep things under the rug because I mean, and I yeah. say this because I mean, there's definitely been times in my life where things that I sort of knew to be true about myself or about others or about whatever, I would just like sweep under the rug and try to continue living. And then of course, eventually like it, you know, uh, everything kind of comes back, right? And you must deal with it ultimately. But uh -huh. you know, th this could be one of those moments where, 
reality kind of settles in and then as always like things get swept under the rug and he just kind of you know uh, tries to find some kind of escape elsewhere right mm -hmm. so you know uh, it's it's possible that 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 critique that be uh, begins the book uh could also be applicable here and you know uh throughout um so uh l l let me i guess just read like maybe uh maybe we could get to there might be something else in between well, how about this? Do you have anything uh, before the ending that you want to read? Because uh, the ending is like the death. We should probably just read that scene in full. Yeah, no, my, my next uh, or my final major quotes were going to be from the death scenes at the end. So okay. well, whatever, whatever yeah. uh, you want to highlight. Um, I, I guess we could, we could just go on to the death because there's, I guess, a, a couple of other things to talk about uh, uh, after the death, right? Maybe we could do like a recap of of Stoner uh, himself mm -hmm. and some of the, the broader questions from the show notes. Um, so w was there like a specific place where you wanted to start? Um, I don't really have any, because uh, I mean, this goes on for a little bit. Um, yeah, I, mine was going to start in the middle of page 276. Okay, so and let's, yeah, mine was going to start later. So let's just go with, with what you wanted. Okay. How about I read through like mid 276 through mid 277 and then you mm -hmm. take it from there to the end. Okay. I'll take it from there was a softness around him. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Okay. So middle of page 276. And he felt also with that breath, he took a shifting somewhere deep inside him, a shifting that stopped something and fixed his head so that it would not move. Then it passed and he thought, so this is what it is like. It occurred to him that he ought to call Edith, and then he knew that he would not call her. The dying are selfish, he thought. They want their moments to themselves, like children. He was breathing again, but there was a difference within him that he could not name. He felt that he was waiting for something, for some knowledge, but it seemed to him that he had all the time in the world. He heard the distant sound of laughter, and he turned his head toward its source. A group of students had cut across his backyard lawn. They were hurrying somewhere. He saw them distinctly. There were three couples. The girls were long-limbed and graceful in their light summer dresses, and the boys were looking at them with the joyous and bemused wonder. They walked lightly upon the grass, hardly touching it, leaving no trace of where they had been. He watched them as they went out of his sight, where he could not see, and for a long time after they had vanished, the sound of their laughter came to him, far and unknowing in the quiet of the summer afternoon. What did you expect? He thought again. A kind of joy came upon him, as if borne in on a summer breeze. He dimly recalled that he had been thinking of failure, as if it mattered. It seemed to him now that such thoughts were mean, unworthy of what his life had been. Dim presences gathered at the edge of his consciousness. He could not see them, but he knew that they were there gathering their forces toward a kind of palpability he could not see or hear. He was approaching them, he knew, but there was no need to hurry. He could ignore them if he wished. He had all the time there was. There was a softness around him, and a languor crept upon his limbs. A sense of his own identity came upon him with a sudden force, and he felt the power of it. He was himself, and he knew what he had been. His head turned. His bedside table was piled with books that he had not touched for a long time. He let his hand play over them for a moment. 
He marveled at the thinness of the fingers, at the intricate articulation of the joints as he flexed them. He felt the strength within them and let them pull a book from the jumble of the tabletop. It was his own book that he saw it. And when the hand held it, he smiled at the familiar red cover that had for a long time been faded and scuffed. It hardly mattered to him that the book was forgotten and that it served no use. And the question of its worth at any time seemed almost trivial. He did not have the illusion that he would find himself there in that fading print. And yet he knew a small part of him that he could not deny was there and would be there. He opened the book and as he did so, it became not his own. He let his fingers riffle through the pages and felt a tingling as if those pages were alive. The tingling came through his fingers and coursed through his flesh and bone. He was minutely aware of it, and he waited until it contained him, until the old excitement that was like terror fixed him where he lay. The sunlight passing his window shone upon the page, and he could not see what was written there. The fingers loosened, and the book they had held moved slowly and then swiftly across the still body and fell into the silence of the room. Um, well, I mean, you know, excellent uh, 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 set of passages, obviously, mm -hmm. but, you know, especially like the, the ending, uh, the way that death gets characterized, not melodramatic, but just poetically enough, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, the fingers loosen. Okay, there's your first indication of what's happening. The book they held moved slowly and then swiftly, right? I mean, imagine the image there, right? Like it's just right. the Mark Twain. Change happens little by little, and then all of a sudden, uh, here, you know, if you're holding a book, obviously, and you're dying, right? It's going to be, you know, it's it's going to it's going it, to it's going to be this thing that that comes suddenly, even though it's been gradual all this time building up, and fell into the silence of the room, right? So, you know, no melodrama, no like pallor of the room, no, you know, deathliness, you know, no, nothing grim, right? It's just this, you know, to the extent that you would call it something like um, outside of oneself, like almost Buddhist, I guess, in a way, mm -hmm. like the, the mindfulness sense, I guess, of that, like, um, I, I could definitely imagine like during death, uh, feeling like, Wow, like uh, you know, all these thoughts that I had about the, these concerns about, like, 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 be honest with yourself. Like, you know, so many of these things that that relate to failure, um, they're they're not questions that you just have as they relate to objective successes in your life that contribute somehow to society. A lot of it is like you know the social stuff, like you know, will people remember me or will I be forgotten? Uh, 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 will, you know, people see me as having done something of value? Like a lot of it is like very kind of socially based and, you know, uh, on some level it does feel like stoner does like, even if you, people want to consider him a saint, much of his life is lived, uh, for others, um, you know, opinions and concerns, right? Like think about it, like, you know, he, he loves his daughter so much, but, uh, he doesn't want to be active enough in his own life to say, you know what, fuck, like, I understand that if I divorce Edith right now and li leave her alone, I will be talked about, I will be scorned. You know, people don't just do these kinds of things and just abandon a woman in this way uh, and, like, steal her daughter from her. Uh, but the fact is, like, I have to do this because she's literally, like, poisoning my child, mm -hmm. right? And she's an evil person and this has to be done, right? But he he doesn't do that 
partly it, it feels like out of you know concern for these kinds of ideas, right? Um, for the concerns of, of others. And uh, uh, you do get the sense though that um, probably if you are dying, you won't be thinking about failures in this kind of lens, right? You won't be thinking like, you know, uh, 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 are, what are people going to say now, right? Like you will recognize yeah. that as a, as a bullshit concern. Um, and, you know, like I, I've never been uh, at a near-death experience in that way, but uh, I get something akin to this. And I'm sure like death in some way might be a little bit similar. Um, you know, if you're just kind of like just waking up or just falling asleep, you get these flashes of insight, like all this is bullshit. Or oftentimes with me, because I get lightheaded, if I'm like sitting down, like on the floor, then suddenly get up. Uh, and I, I find that feeling pleasant. But when I get that feeling, it's almost death-like in the sense that I see I see the world, although like I've, I'm lightheaded, I'm I faint, I see the world very fucking clearly in, those, in that situation where I'm like, Oh my God, Alex, as, I, as I'm getting up and this happens, you know, it happens only like over two or three seconds, but so many thoughts get compressed when you're like, oh my God, Alex, did you really spend like a chunk of your day worrying about, and it's like some bullshit, right? Or, or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, um, you know, uh, I know that John Williams obviously was not dead when he wrote this, but, uh, it, 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 and by definition, anyone that's writing about death does not have the firsthand knowledge, but it's always interesting to me how, uh, like, like, how, how are people going to interpret what is thought of in death and how close to the mark is this? And do we have experiences in our life day to day where we think like, okay, death might be a little bit like this and the concerns during death might look a little bit like that. I, I just find this like, frankly, believable to the extent that we can know anything about, you know, what we feel like during death. Um, uh, I, I, I find this uh, a believable uh, way of, of framing those, those issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it is believable in general. And I think it's also uh, like an apropos end for Stoner himself. Uh, you know, there's this silence in the room. He's alone, right? I don't think I misread that. He thinks about calling Edith basically mm -hmm. to tell her, hey, you know, goodbye or I'm, I'm about mm -hmm. to die. And then he decides not to. So he decides to go it alone and, and just be with himself both present in his his body in its final moments but also in his book mm -hmm. and this one contribution he feels like he can cling to and say there might be some of me that that lives on in this mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter you know really how it's perceived or how much of me is in there like a little piece of me is in there and i you know i did this work um again it's, it's just interesting that we're never told really what it is yeah Right. Yeah. I, there's never a detail about yeah. here's what that thesis really came out to be. And here's how it was received both in his immediate university and the wider academic literature community. Mm -hmm. It's, he just did it. It exists. We know it's old. It's this old copy that's faded and, and mm -hmm. scratched it says, right. But he's kept it around. So, mm -hmm. um, it's kind of, kind of like his self in a way, kind of like his own, his own personhood or his own body in a way. Um, yeah. this also, these, final moments made me think again like so there's there's this bit of work that he's got this bit of himself that he's clinging to and a couple other flashes about his life as he's dying but on page 250 or 249 to 250 there's also this moment where he gets a copy of Catherine's book mm -hmm. oh, yeah, in his hands that. and it's it's kind of similar so there's a parallel there where he feels passion 
toward her even from afar. He kind of has a final reigniting of what he used to feel toward her by reading this book and, and holding it in his hands. And he, you know, he feels like he should be beyond such kinds of passion and love, but realizes that he's not. And, um, and, and so there, there's, there's some parallels there from mm. another experience from not too long before he is about to die and, you know, and thinks of her again. So, um, you know, these two passions of his life do really kind of come to him in the end, you know, he, he gets a final go round with them. And, and yeah, I mean, I think that whole passage that we just jointly read at the end of the book is, is, is quite well written and, uh, and beautiful. Yeah. So do, do you think, uh, by the end of the book, um, cause yeah, it's a question throughout the book and it, this is a question that readers have in general, right? It seems like all the kind of critiques kind of focus on this, uh, was, uh, 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 William Stoner, uh, in some ways, or in one way, or in like the fundamental way, like was he a failure? Like, what do you what do you think of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm still wrestling with that question a little bit. Uh, I think that uh, I, I, I think in a lot of ways he was. Frankly, mm -hmm. um, we've talked about his 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 passive nature through his whole life, but I guess I felt at multiple points. And this is why I made the argument earlier that I don't, I never saw him as a saint figure through this whole book that his passivity on some of the most critical things is, is really frustrating and, and almost unforgivable. Like mm -hmm. he, he had opportunities to right some wrongs from prior decision-making to step in and, and improve his life or the life of, let's say, especially grace mm -hmm. at multiple times. And if, if he's going to be someone who let's face it is, is this kind of rote academic and maybe did have some impact on some students' lives and, and a few others. But for the most part, you know, going back to the very beginning of the book, we're told by John Williams, he's not remembered fondly to this mm -hmm. day. He's mostly forgotten. Well, which is no also kind of surprising to me. I mean, like, uh, do, do uh, cause Sorry for interrupting, but I'm going to forget this. Like, do you notice how um, the book seems to go back and forth between this idea of he's like this disinterested, boring teacher to someone that is like admired by his students and someone that is popular with students and someone that has a passion for his teaching? Like, I never really understood that part. Right. Like, so in terms of being a failure, like, well, the teaching is part of, is part of that question. So like, 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 what about that? Um it's just, yeah, I, it's just weird to me. I know it does go back and forth. And I think some of it is lined out as vacillating attitudes in his mm -hmm. own life and his own approach. Like we said earlier, he, he goes through a couple periods of like more intense engagement with his teaching and really striving to improve. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and like he has this stultification, right? So like he feels these things, but he cannot get them out. They don't mm -hmm. actually present to the world and and then like a few times he does manage that mm -hmm. but i think that's one of his big issues is is the stunted nature of uh, he 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 can't express mm -hmm. very easily yeah. at all so even if he does feel these things inwardly uh and maybe at times they burst through for a bit where his reputation grows mm -hmm. among the students and faculty it also can recede again. And he seems to go back into 
into the cave yeah and and go through down periods Mm -hmm. so he's he's not consistent in that way which is kind of interesting because a a lot of his character feels consistent which is why which is why it's surprising you know like he he doesn't he doesn't strike me as someone that would be like you know going into this teaching after having this this transformative experience and knowing what we know about him in general like for him to just be like a detached, disinterested teacher, that uh, he seems way too conscientious, you know, for that to be uh, realistic. But, you know, uh, I mean, who knows? Uh, uh, you know, it could be, th- this could be like too, too nitpicky, obviously, but. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But um, at any rate, just, I think just to wrap up my, my other prior point. So where Williams tells us at the beginning of the book that, more or less now, you know, years on from his demise, uh, he's still not really, he doesn't conjure up any kind of image or feeling uh, among people. I think that, you know, maybe personally for, for some of what he could have been, he did succeed and maybe even exceeded his, his upbringing, it's a tough question because now we, we start getting into questions of like, well, is living the life of an average professor more noble and valuable than the life of an average farmer? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we need farmers. People, yeah. people have to farm so all of us can eat. It's a noble profession in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, we don't, you know, it's, it's important that we have literature teachers, but we don't. And, truly, and, and, truly, and we needed so many farmers to have one professor that ultimately right. by his own admission, doesn't really produce like writing of value. You know what I mean? Um, You know, so there's that like, like in terms of like adjudicating his failures, I mean, uh, I mean like, okay. Is, are, are his parents failures? Uh, I mean, they just lived their lives as farmers. They died, they died as farmers. They were able to raise a child and that child sort of moved on to somewhere else. So, I mean, they're not failures. Uh, uh, in terms of like living the life of a kind of like a generic professor who does, you know, scholarship that uh, is is in fact forgotten. Like if you, like, I, 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 some, I sometimes would do this thing where I would go to like university libraries and I would look at their journals from like the fifties or whatever. Um, and it's like, what are, and these articles, weirdly enough, they all sound like articles of today. Um, and, 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 you, and you just wonder like, who are these anonymous people that all sound the fucking same, that all have like a very specific, hyper-specific point on, you know, uh, here's, a line, here's a line from Latin grammar that could be something that, uh, you know, Shakespeare or whatever was influenced by. Um, usually that's the kind of scholarship that we get. Like, is that a failure or is that simply the kind of uh, generic you know, intellectual grunt work that is done. Um, Cause you know, those, those questions, like I don't really find them that interesting, but those questions, I think, you know, all things considered, if you could answer them versus not answer them, you probably should answer them. It's probably good if there's answers available. Mm-hmm. It's probably good if people are, are, you know, spending some time in that because, you know, probably like if you are someone that is uh, a, a stoner like scholar, uh, you probably can't be an artist so why why should why shouldn't you do this thing even if like you know real artists will sort of you know poke fun at it um you you kind of did kind of like what you had to do i think to me like um uh, the failures for stoner is not so much about that i think you know he's kind of like what the university system is kind of supposed to be right Mm -hmm. um he's very much a success in that way 
But um, to me, his failures were a lot more pronounced in, and the reason why I can't really consider him a saint is, you know, just to go back to the Grace example, like it's obvious that he loves his daughter, Grace. It's obvious that he's doing something to cultivate the only positive, truly healthy, you know, relationship that he has with his, with his, in his life, which is with his uh, very young daughter. And then to just allow this sociopathic, you know, wife of yours to just, you know, uh, undo all of that, right? To to just, you know, and, and, and to and to not figure into the equation that, hey, by the way, uh, Stoner, you might not give a shit if something bad is being done to you by someone, uh, and you just stoically go through it. But this is not something bad that's just being done to you. Like she's going to turn this child of yours uh, uh, into a fucking zombie. Uh, or some other kind of monster, right? So, you know, you have to intervene right now and you can't simply say, I'm passive in my life as it relates to my feelings and my day-to-day. You can't say the same thing about, you know, like if you if you do agree to have a daughter with Edith, even if you think it's a bad idea, well, you go through with it, now you have this obligation. So mm-hmm. how is that obligation gonna be met? And the fact that it's not, you know, it's it's not met. He, he absolutely fails when it comes to, you know, uh, uh, you know, maybe it's not fair to say that he would be able to completely save his daughter from alcoholism and this kind of end. Maybe she would just be, you know, a wire to exactly be like Edith. Who knows? But he clearly could have done much more. And he she has to share, to the extent that we can know anything about like these kinds of futures, he has to share some kind of blame for the way that his daughter turned out. Um, and right. we, 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 we did it. You, you touched on the daughter briefly, but I just want to mention how like, uh, I, I found it to be a really wonderful touch how this 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 presence that seems to be like angelic in some ways at, at the beginning and seems to be like the only positive emotional outlet outlet for Stoner gets taken away from him and instead of becoming this like evil like Edith like monster or whatever she's just like turned into this like alcoholic who doesn't give like like he's like oh yeah i'll have a child oh yeah i'll marry this guy like doesn't really care about anything uh mm-hmm. kind of has the same kind of edith whimsy uh and just becomes an alcoholic who doesn't seem to do anything too terrible to anyone you know except well you know abandoning uh, i guess her daughter or yeah i think it's her daughter um but but you know she's an interesting char- character also in that regard right because she you see this kind of zombification and you see like stoner probably like you know being in a moment where he can't be introspective but you know he probably did have a moment you know in the universe of the book even if it's not written in the book where just like seeing her her marriage uh he sees what happens to her ultimately and just kind of files it away and sweeps that under the rug um I, i could imagine you know him shirking responsibility in that way and saying like that's not really my fault is it um or, or yeah. actually not not even not even making that calculation one way or the other, just kind of ignoring it, right? Just sort of have, having the thought that, hey, this is a calculation that I need to wrestle with, but I'm not going to do it, right? I'm just going to, you know, go, go back to my books. You know, he's very five in that way, right? The Enneagram stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's very, fi- he's, he, he's very much a five uh, in that regard, um, but more the, the five that's like, far more analytical than artistic, although there's a clear over- overlap with art. He's he's not wired, you know, a- as a truly artistic person would be in that way. Yeah. Well, it, it yeah, in terms of the balance and the question on whether he's a success or a failure, it, it's definitely, 
important to note that he puts a lot more passion and effort into a one hour panel discussion to take down Charles Walker's attempt at a doctorate degree mm-hmm. than to help his daughter yeah. have a shot at, at a well-balanced life. Yeah. Right. So, so, and, and, and we sort of, in a way you can see this coming because he, he is dis- d- described this feeling of passion toward his work and toward his subject. Mm-hmm. But then the, the rest of his relationships, so many of his relationships are so difficult and, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 in the one sense, it's like if he were artistically inclined and let's say that he was like an okay professor, but turns out that he wrote like a couple good novels or one or two good books of poetry or something that uh, changes things because then we yeah. start to say, well, here's a worthwhile contribution though, or a larger worthwhile contribution to uh, human history and human culture. And yeah, it's, it's, it's and, not just self-indulgence anymore, right? It's not just like, even if it's objectively good to have, you know, pleasures that are of the mind and you go in that direction as opposed to something else. Well, right. it's still indulgent in the sense that after this pleasure is done, you don't do anything with it. Yeah. Right. Which is why, like, you know, said earlier, like uh, when we decided to do this artifact uh, podcast and I was like, listen, like I read so much stuff. And most of the time I don't write about it. I don't use it in any way. And it just like disappears. So yeah. let's, let's actually do the same thing now. But like, just, if we're reading a book, let's just talk about it and have something out there, right? That it, it, it doesn't simply die, you know, in our minds, because if we have something worthwhile to say and you don't say it, well, guess what? Uh, you, uh, that's a failure, right? That's a sin. Um, if you have something to offer and you don't offer it, that is a personal failing. Like that's not, that's not like an option that you have in life that, Oh, I just chose not to exercise it. No, you did an objectively bad thing. So, um, and, and Stoner, like, you know, uh, uh, in that way, since he's not able to be anything other than self-indulgent, um, like without like the modern, I guess, like worse implications of that, but like just self-indulgent in the sense that, you know, he wanted to escape the life of the form to a life of the mind, right? So that's what he's going to do here with these books. But ultimately, you know, just nothing really comes of it, right? Right. Well, and and even like you can say, okay, so so if art isn't going to be produced, you know, as part of the end game of his life, well, then, okay, we're on the, the rung of the ladder that is scholarship. Mm-hmm. But we're told that he is not a distinguished scholar in any way. Yeah. And at the end of his life, he's clinging to this one small book that he wrote. That could have also changed the equation, right? If if he were someone who were making really interesting connections between yeah. and like potentially important connections that, let's say, an artist could come across and use. Let's say that, you know, a, a student comes through the literature department at the University of Missouri uh, in the final years of Stoner's professorship there and and like, became a character in this book that finds some of his, you know, really incisive articles. And is like, okay, this is interesting because the way that you discussed Shakespeare's sonnets one 14 and 77. And I mean, right. Like you, you could, you could mm-hmm. get to the point where then this person is like, so I'm taking what you have done and going to use it actually with some of my combination of my own ideas to maybe push poetry forward or something like there we would have again a more important contribution mm-hmm. something that wouldn't fall in the failure column 
and might even be like a pretty decent success mm-hmm. for someone of his position. Yeah. Uh, that also could have contributed, but yeah, I think on the, on the balance, although he does, um, he bears a lot of suffering and he obviously does feel things deeply and at times thinks through them and at times acts on them. Uh, there's not enough of that yeah. in his life. Um, one thing I'd say is one of the best things about uh, this book uh, is ju- just the fact that, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, we, we clearly have some villains in the book, like people like Edith, uh, but uh, you know, I understand that readers have different interpretations and I get that John Williams had his own interpretations here, but like the fact is just purely on like textual evidence alone, if all you have is the book to go on, like this document, this artifact, uh, uh, like you, you, you just have to, um, uh, you, you, you read through it and these people that are supposed to be, you know, heroes or villains, like, okay, stoner. So, he, he, you know, he treats the interruptions of uh, 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 the, the Walker character as just, you know, annoying, pointless interruptions. Um, and then a reader could say, well, but they're not just pointless interruptions because, look, Stoner is like very kind of methodical and prosaic and he doesn't truly get art, he, you know, beyond this kind of, you know, clerical, scholarly way. And, you know, Walker is trying to open things up. Uh, Lomax is trying to o- open things up. But then again, just going by textual evidence alone, what does Walker actually say about Shakespeare? Well, he starts going off on this, like, the genius of Shakespeare thing, which, you know, uh, you could easily see him writing something like a fucking, like, Harold Bloom book on Shakespeare, right? Um, right. There, there's, there's, you know, th- there's an indication that, okay, maybe the critique of Stoner's approach to literature uh, is correct, right? Like, that, that critique might be spot on, that, that Stoner is missing essentials here, but uh, uh, whatever you feel personally, the Walker character, there's nothing that Walker or Lomax ever say about literature or about Shakespeare, even when they get specific, that tells you that their approach is in any way better. So they're not in that sense, like more heroic or better than he is, right? They just see like, okay, there's a problem with uh, uh, this guy's approach to literature and we want to sort of, you know, make a name for ourselves. So, uh, you know, let's critique it but also not really offer anything of value ourselves, right? You know, same thing with, um, you know, uh, this question of like, well, clearly he's trying to be a good father. Clearly he's trying to like, you know, have a good functional marriage, at least at the beginning. But again, he allows his daughter to be turned into a zombie, right? He allows like the one time in his life where he could have love with Catherine, you know, he's, he's, he's clearly so concerned about what other people think, right? As much as he wants to escape that, like, objectively like like okay if you want to be a true five about it and you want to be like perfectly rational objectively what is the best thing for your life right now and for the people surrounding you you divorce your wife you take your daughter away from her and you move in with this woman that you love and that loves you and that will love your child right like mm-hmm. that's literally best for everybody right yeah. this is this is but he's he, he he's not able to make the calculation not because he necessarily thinks that thinks that it's wrong but because um you know, he, he must be on some level concerned with the rest of the world, right? This world that he's trying to escape into these abstractions. Uh, he, he just can't, he just can't put it out completely. Um, yeah. Well, so. and, and he wants the, he wants his fortress. He wants to maintain the protection of the, the university. Right. And again, if he were someone who had like 
more more insight and also more drive, he might say, and so if I get fired from this professorship, fuck it. I'll yeah. get a I'll get a professorship elsewhere or yeah. I'll just start writing articles for the Atlantic and yeah. and shower people with my insight through a different mm-hmm. a different channel or a different medium or I'm going to just start writing books and mm-hmm. you know um uh, you know uh, uh, what whatever happens to me financially happens to me financially like it's more mm-hmm. important that I get these other things done yeah. um you know I mean it, there's again there's just all these other decisions that you're you as the reader are like reading about the way he decides to go and you're just like, Oh, you know, like yeah. you walk through, through door number four when doors one through three were, were better. I mean, yeah, you, you could have done something different here, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah. It, it, yeah, from that standpoint, it eventually is hard to empathize with him past a certain point. Yeah. And, uh, I figure. Although I do think that readers are less hard on themselves, like we, like we probably are, uh, um, they they might be a little more forgiving, right? Um, like I I feel like there's certain things that he does. Like if that if I were to do my personal life, I would never forgive myself for it. But it seems like that's not even a question for him, right? So, um, yeah. and you know, I I wonder like, well, you know, is that exceptional? Is that more kind of the norm? Because you know, I'm oftentimes surprised by uh, how kind of uh, you know, stoic human beings can be. And then I'm also, uh, I'm oftentimes surprised at, at the opposite as well. So, you know, right. who, who know, who knows what the average reader is thinking, but anyway, those are my impressions. But, but, but speaking of, uh, 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 average readers, oh, I don't mean to be that condescending. Uh, there's this thing that I wanted to, um, uh, this article that I read in preparation for, um, let's just share this in preparation for this, conversation um like there's just you know like so so like most of the critiques of this book have actually come out in the last um 15 years right since publication i believe it was like what 2004 so you had a bunch of stuff and like you know then then 2007 2009 and then some like later articles you keep appearing uh, on uh the the john williams book um, and I mean, I, 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 I read this, uh, this was in the Washington post, uh, it's titled classic stoner, not so fast. So this is supposed to be a kind of, I guess, critical reappraisal. Cause it got, like we said earlier, tons of praise, um, uh, when it, uh, kind of was republished back in 2004. So this article from, from 2015 by Elaine, uh, Showalter, um, uh, it's interesting because like, I, I sort of agree with some of the substance of the critiques, but uh, I think she just kind of misses uh, lots of the points. And the way that she phrases things, uh, she's she's clearly not understanding uh, maybe not just the book itself, but maybe literature in general. Um, like even if like some of the core propositions, like I would kind of agree with anyway, right? Like I, I always say that I'm not really interested in finding necessarily people that agree with me. I'm much more interested in people finding novel ways of saying either the same thing that I believe or things that I don't believe, right? I, I, I want novel arguments, right? I want, I, I always want like want, want something new and different and just like better in some way. Um, this kind of fails in some regards. So I just want to uh, read this over. Um, uh, so, so she begin, begins her article by saying, the 50th anniversary edition of John Williams's Stoner comes garlanded with hyperbole. Brett Easton Ellis calls the novel, quote, almost perfect. Morris Dickstein raises it to, quote, perfect. Ian McEwen uh, calls it, quote, beautiful. Emma Straub 
dubs it quote the most beautiful book in the world um so like i mean like like what do you think of that so far like do, do you agree that the the these critiques uh uh the, do you agree that this is hyperbole like do you do you feel like the the consensus is sort of not where it needs to be yeah i i agree with that almost perfect perfect and the most beautiful book in the world yeah uh you know a pretty pretty big stretch there i, I think mm -hmm. as you and i have argued beautiful can can certainly be argued for with the prose and the style of it and even some of the the, the, the feelings evoked in the reader, uh, the, you know, the relatability in your own life and some of these things, you know, it, it does have a kind of a beautiful feel to it, but yeah. yeah. Um, it garlanded with hyperbole. If, if that's the praise, that's yeah. It's over the top. And, and it, it, sh it struck me that was a little bit like, okay, I mean, you could start your, your article with that paragraph, but um, it, you know, it's almost kind of like too easy in the sense that, well, you know, almost anything that is being yeah. released or re-released and called perfect, almost always that's not going to be the case, right? Like, she can it, take it down very easily from here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it's yeah, it's very it's very easy to say. Well, here's ways that it's not perfect. Yeah. Um. So, so to continue, uh, the story of William Stoner, a professor of English at the University of Missouri, who fails in his marriage and career ambitions, but accepts obscurity and loneliness of the out of devotion to teaching and love of literature went unremarked on it on when it was first published in 1965. In the 21st century, however, it has become a literary phenomenon, first as an unexpected European bestseller and then as an American classic. Much of that applause hails Stoner as a devoted teacher, an exemplary scholar, and an example of all that is noble in the academic profession. As Williams said in a letter to his literary agent in the 50s, the point of the novel will be that he is a kind of saint. It is a novel about a man who finds no meaning in the world or in himself, but he does find meaning and a kind of victory in the honest and dog pursuit of his profession. So uh, like so far also, I guess, like what do, what do you think of that? Well, yeah, so this is, what we've mentioned several times now with Williams's discussion of uh, the point of the novel will be that he is a kind of saint. Um, he does find meaning in, in a kind of victory in the honest and dogged pursuit of his profession. So, um, yeah, I mean, there are shades of that there, like we've talked about, but I, I think calling this the point of the novel, especially from the author himself is, mm -hmm it's it's a it's a really yeah. narrow distillation of things and it's not even completely correct yeah uh, i and, don't think yeah and, and also i mean that beginning sentence right much of that applause hails stoner as a devoted teacher an exemplary scholar and an, an example of all that is noble in the academic profession uh actually right. like if you look at some you know many you know many of the articles and reviews like they people do say that readers do say that which which is also troubling right i mean yeah. i don't i don't think uh you should uh, get out of this book thinking wow what an obvious example of a devoted teacher what an obvious example of an exemplary scholar i mean literally nothing in the like like stoner himself struggles with whether or not he's a failure as a scholar because the book is not read and he literally can't like at the end of like when we read that passage when he's dying he literally can't even find himself 
within the text, right? Like he's yeah. he's saying that I'm reading it, but uh, I don't even see myself. Like now that could be kind of, you know, a poetic, you know, twist on death. Who knows? That could also be though that, you know, the idea that, hey, um, uh, what I think is truly me, what I have to uh, give to the world, I clearly can't give it because there's nothing that's uniquely me in this book. Anybody could have written this book. Any kind of scholar could have written this book, right? Um, you know, like there's way, there's different ways you could uh, interpret that final uh, uh, part. Um, so, yeah. like, and, and but readers do kind of think in that way, which is kind of troubling to me. Right, it, it is troubling, and it's also troubling if you're going to say much of that applause, right? So, so this is people praising the book. And yeah. part of why it's become a cult classic. Yeah, exactly. In our, in, in, in our time here, you and I have done way more to actually praise the book and discuss yeah. why it, you know, why it works where it works and why it doesn't work where it doesn't work as an artwork versus, yeah. oh, that was nice because he seems like a devoted teacher. Yeah, what he's a, a good guy. <laughs> yeah, what a great work of art. Uh, the, su yeah. the, the, the subject of it is a great person. It's a nice yeah. person. Uh, yeah, you know, he, it's like, he, he really persisted in, in the yeah. face of some departmental uh, feuds. Yeah, this, no, this, what a great this is, book. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a, such a fucking like young adult like the fucking YA shit. This is such a YA reading of like you know what modern literature ought to be like. It needs to have uh, a set of like you know moral lessons and exemplars, right? And here's right. going to be the guy that's going to be our our exemplar. Um, yeah, and it just it just misses. Yeah, exactly. It misses exactly why this book would in fact be like it, it like that, that's a frustrating thing like it is a very good book but if you're saying it's a very good book for these reasons then sorry like i can't imagine a more boring conversation right you know like i i would much rather deal with somebody that thinks it's a shit book and he's going to give me all the reasons why um yeah. as opposed to like a fan that shares my positive assessment but his positive assessment uh, you know comes down to you know stoner is nice i would have wanted him as a father or, or like whatever um yeah. Well, and, and now, you know, the next paragraph that you're about to read is going to get into even more problematic stuff uh, from a different angle here, because we're, we're this, again, we're, this is we're, the way that the word problematic should be used. Right. And, 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 and we're not going to be talking here really at all about the quality of the prose or yeah. the quality of, of the writing and the characterization mm -hmm. and the narrative arcs. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. But I'm not a fan of stoner. So first uh, she puts that in quotation marks, which, um, uh, I'm not sure. Like, and, th and, and this is the thing. I remember when I first read the site. So I'm like, okay. So she puts stoner quotation marks. We learned in school that the titles of novels need to be underlined. So is she like, is she making stylistic choice where she's talking about the novel? Is she here now talking about the character? Like at this point, I literally could yeah. not understand whether she's talking about she's a fan personally of this character called Stoner in the book or whether she's a fan of uh, the book itself. Like the fact, the fact that I am not able to make that distinction, now that is truly problematic. Mm -hmm. that, that, that is a critical lapse that is just completely unforgivable. But I am not a fan of quotation marks Stoner. Mm -hmm. First, along with other female readers, I am put off by Williams's misogyny. Second, as a professor of English, I am dismayed by the pedantry and narrow-mindedness of his teaching and his treatment of a dissenting student. Um, so, like, uh, notice how, like, in the first sense, she says, I'm not a fan of, quote, stoner. Okay, so, again, novel or character, who knows? Then she says, I am 
put off by Williams' misogyny. Now, Williams, John Williams is the author, right? It's not, it's no longer William Stoner that she's talking about. She's talking right. about uh, John Williams, the author. So she's now making the charge that John Williams, the author, is misogynistic or has misogynistic characterizations, whatever. Yeah. Uh, second, as a professor, I'm dismayed by the penitentiary and our minds of his teaching. So wait, we, are we talking about John Williams or are we talking about Stoner? Like right. she literally like slips into the his as if mm -hmm. like it doesn't even fucking matter. The his could be Willie, John Williams, the author. The his could be uh, William Stoner, the character. Yeah. She literally yeah. doesn't – she thinks it doesn't matter enough. The his could be anything, right? Um, right. uh, like the two could just be conflated so easily, which is, you know, like j j just in terms of just grammatical clarity, like the fact that this is like published in a newspaper, like Washington Post. I mean, did nobody, and that's the thing, nobody else was confused, you know, about what this is referring to, to say like, Hey, you know, may maybe you should, uh, make a note of this. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but, but also, uh, you know, like, like obviously like first hearing, like, you know, an author's misogyny, like obviously, yeah, I'm going to have a fucking eye roll, uh, for many of the same reasons that I put into like the, that recent video on, uh, uh, Will Noland and the patriarchy paradox video that he did. Uh, I understand there's this constant overcompensation among scholars, among academics, whatever, among, you know, people in general, the culture, whatever hegemonic culture is. You know, they overcompensated. They think everything is misogynistic. But, you know, I will be honest, like, you know, Edith is, to the extent that we could say that anyone or anything is a misogynistic character or written in a way that's misogynistic. I mean, Edith is literally a, like, caricatured, depressed um, female that manipulates her way through a marriage and, and manipulates the good graces of her, like, dunce husband and becomes like a fucking like animal lecherous you know you know like uh, animal in heat when she wants to get pregnant um and has no other redeeming qualities has no real complexity has no real resolution that we can speak of other than a kind of like hasty a little bit cheapened one um can we not say that there is like like uh, maybe we don't like i don't know what other word other misogyny that we would use but how would you characterize that trope in literature? Because, I mean, she very much fits that trope. If we could say it's a trope, if we could say it's a misogynistic trope, like, she fits that, right? I mean, I don't see any other purpose. And I don't think it's unfair to characterize, especially in the sexual scenes, as like, you know, like a dog in heat when she finally wants to get pregnant. I mean, it's, it's I, I think it's, um, I mean, like, so, so maybe you could comment on that part, I guess. Right. Well, I, I think in a sense, you and I, we've already broken down our problems with Edith as a character. Yeah. I don't know that we necessarily need to rehash that. And we have faulted Williams for, for some poor characterization. Exactly. Now, again, as an author, that's the bigger problem uh -huh. than whether she's portrayed misogynistically. Yeah. Um, it, it is a problem. And we agree that the two, you know, they go hand in hand. He could have written a less misogynistic character that was also a better character and, and gave, yeah. gave us as the reader more to work with and gave him more to play off of, uh, you know, with the interactions with not just stoner, but, but or, or the opposite, right? Like he could have written a non-misogynistic character that was just even worse as a character was even more caricatured in some way. 
you know, true. You know, yeah, yeah. Could have been, you know, the 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 perfect, uh, you know, can't can do no wrong kind of woman and stoner is some kind of like monster. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, it could have been, could have been multiple missteps there. Um, but but again, you know, like if if you're a professor of literature at at an Ivy League school, and this is you know what you're most upset about uh, yeah. in the book, we, we we've got we've got a bigger fish to fry here. You know? Yeah. And, and that's the thing. I mean, and, and you know, on some level, I, I, I don't want to make this argument too strongly because I'm not sure how much of it uh, I truly buy, but um, if you're writing bad female or bad male characters on some level, they are going to be kind of like baseline misogynistic or, you know, um, what's the term for hating men misandrist. Right. So, yeah. um, uh, uh, you know, like if you're writing a woman that's like a caricature, well, some of the characters I'm sure are going to be like, you know, feminine characters, right? So to, 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 to the degree that that's misogynistic, like that's going to be kind of a baseline, right? So, um, but, but again, you, you, the way that you short, short circuit, like something like the misogyny, you have the following fucking precept for every author to follow. Make sure that number one, you write a great character, right? Because because mm-hmm. if you have a great character, you're not going to be able to make these. Sometimes maybe you can, but generally speaking, you're not going to be able to make these kinds of judgments. Like one of the, like one of the judgments against like Woody Allen is like, oh, he's such a fucking you know piece of shit in his personal life. But you know, uh, to the extent that anyone could call him misogynistic, even if you believe in the sexual abuse allegations against him, I mean, he's written the best fucking female characters of any, you know, uh, filmmaker, uh, period. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, or, or some of the best at least, right. Even if you think that's excessive, some of the best female characters, period to do that, you must be able to be empathetic towards women, or at least for the time being be empathetic, like towards women, get, get it, get into their minds uh, 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 try to understand how they would behave in various situations, try to understand their motives as distinct from your own motives that you might have towards a woman. Um, and, and, you know, uh, to, to that extent that you would do that, that is not misogyny. That is, you know, a genuine kind of empathy. Um, so if you have that genuine empathy to start, like we could short circuit shit like misogyny and not be needlessly controversial if we tackle the characterization itself. And, um, you know, and the question is like, well, uh, does her description actually tackle the characterization? And I think to some degree it doesn't, some degree it doesn't. And also, but, you know, the, the, the second part, I guess we're going to get into as well. I'm dismayed by the penetrating our minds of his teaching, meaning, you know, uh, William Stoner's teaching and his treatment of the dissenting student. Again, we could sort of say that, but that's not, um, you know, that's, we can't just leave the critique there. Maybe you could read more of it. I'm, I feel like I'm talking well, too much. Well, hold on one, one second there on, the, on her second part of that paragraph too. Okay. Again, it's, it has missed one of the core points though. One of the key reasons that he treats Walker the way he does is to protect Catherine Driscoll. Yeah. Who later on becomes, you know, this very positive point in his life who is certainly not a misogynistic character mm-hmm. right is a is a for all intents and purposes a good woman like mm-hmm. we've we've talked about is she a great professor or a great artist you know it seems not but she's she seems like a good person and she loves stoner well and uh she doesn't cause scenes and you know she's like edith's foil in a lot of ways in his life right so uh william is also perfectly capable of writing a non-misogynistic female character mm-hmm. obviously 
Um, but, but yeah, I mean, to, to say that again, I have a problem with the entire novel stoner because William stoner, the main character. And, and we, and we don't even know that, like the, the stoner quotation, we're like, what is that? I, I don't yeah. get it. I don't and understand what's going on here. I really don't. Right. We're still not totally sure, but let's say it is about stoner, the central character. I, you know, I didn't like the fact that he was pretty mean and, uh, you know, and boxed out a potentially, you know, a dissenting and maybe kind of promising ish student from the doctoral program, uh, for, for some petty disagreements. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what people do. People yeah. do this in the world. Yeah. Like, I don't understand why this is a problem with yeah. the novel. This, this is yeah. a, a very real thing, a realistic scenario. Yeah. People do this shit all the time. The question is like, uh, you know, and if Williams is in fact critiquing this as like, you know, to some degree, I think we've made the case that just based on the text alone, we don't know truly where William stands, which is kind of a problem for the book in terms of really reaching like true greatness. It does not have that totalizing sort of, you know, force, but we, we, we have conceded that it's an open-ended question as to whether or not he is critiquing Stoner uh, for be. not being an yeah. artist, for not being able to like, you know, be anything other than essentially a scholarly cleric. Um, yep. uh, uh, and, and, you know, uh, we also know that uh, much of what these students are, are saying, this this student and, and, and Lomax for that matter, uh, it's just kind of its own variety of bullshit, right? Um, so it, it's open-ended enough that we don't even, we can't even say for a fact that Williams is not offering this critique of stoner and his treatment of the student even if he's critiquing the student as well um so, so and, and the fact that like you know like you could have you could ultimately make the argument that you know i don't believe that he's critiquing and i think you, you could make a successful argument there but um uh, you would have to like put that disclaimer into this article you can't just leave it at that you have to have these disclaimers if you're going to say that you know yes um yeah correct so i mean then moving on to the next paragraph she makes the points like the novel's not autobiographical completely. We talked about that some, uh, but the last sentence there, but his novel is tenderly protective of its passive hero and presents him as helplessly sinned against. Again, I think you and I have made the case. That's not, mm -hmm. that's certainly not the only reading of it. And I would contend it's not the correct reading yeah. of it. Um, you know, it, even if Williams says so in an interview, We've talked about before numerous times how sometimes the artist doesn't even understand their own work. Yeah. And, and maybe, you know, unbeknownst to him, Williams wrote a, a better novel here than he even realized. Yeah. I think and, so. Uh, yeah. And cored more deeply into some things than, than he understood himself to have done. So yeah. uh, again, you know, it's, uh, it's not the case out and out that stoner is, is just put on a pedestal and, Oh my God, can you believe all these horrendous things that happened to this noble creature who ended up dying of cancer all over his body at a kind of early age? Like he's a saint, you know, it, no, it's, it's, mm -hmm. if, if you're reading in a nuanced way, there are critiques of stoners, you know, stoner himself mm -hmm. sprinkled in throughout. Mm -hmm. And he's, uh, while he, while he can be empathized with, he's far from perfect. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and, and um, I mean, like, I'm just getting this, like, sinking feeling. Uh, I'm not sure if you are that. Uh, uh, she seems to not really care about books at all, right? Like, just, just like, even thinking about, um, uh, like, she's, she's, she's literally not thinking about the book. You know what I mean? She's just not uh, mm -hmm. Elena Showalter. Um, 
it's just, you know, like I, I, I don't, I don't understand how you could like be into literature, but not really think, be thinking about it either. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, you, ha- you got to be able to parse these things out. Yeah. You know, if, if you read a book and, and you want to make some of these assertions about not liking a, a misogynistic yeah. character portrayal. And so, I mean, that's fine, but offer us some other things too. give, give talk about the writing itself. Talk about, the, yeah. the, the good points you know overall is just the general statement i'm not a fan of stoner yeah okay yeah. <laughs> i'm not yeah. i'm not a fan of the denver broncos but maybe their quarterback's good you know yeah and like and if you don't care about these other layers it's like well why do you then care about literature like uh, do you really get like some fucking cakes from reading this book and talking about its misogyny like is that really is that really interesting that's really interesting to you like I, like what is interesting about that it's not Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh, anyway, but, but, but here's the thing. I mean, yeah. like, uh, n- not to be too, too critical of this because you know, to, uh, whether or not, uh, you know, uh, well, you know, she does think that she's making a valid critique in this next paragraph. And, uh, uh I, I, I agree that in terms of like strict characterization, I mean, she does make good points here about kind of what happens with Edith's character in the book. Um, the worst of Stoner's afflictions is his marriage. He is consistently rejected and irrationally sabotaged by his wife, Edith, who is portrayed as a neurotic harpy. All that is true. Initially, a sheltered society girl, shy and earnest about her duties to her husband. I'm not so sure about that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, she, she, th- that could have been all an act, right? Like, you know, um, you know that, 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 that's, that's the thing about like talking about like if you want to fucking talk about sexual dynamics – you're going to have to talk about the ways in which women do have power. And one of the possibilities is men can easily be manipulated uh, sexually and otherwise, you know, by uh, a pretty girl. Right. Um, and you, you could say that that is a sexist reading, but you know, th- this is part of the book. And if that's part of this, if that is the sexism that is part of this book, you can't say shine and earnest about her duties. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not right. Like if we're saying that it's a sexist portrayal from the beginning, she's that neurotic harpy, even if she hides it. Right. So th- th- this is kind of like almost like a contradiction with her own like reading of it. Right. Which is weird. She's so sexually repressed that on their honeymoon, she throws up when he embraces her. They are both virgins. But then Edith decides she wants to have a baby and abruptly becomes a quote, wild and demanding end quote, erotomaniac crouching naked on the unmade bed all day and quote clutching and tearing at his clothes when he comes home now that part is correct and to the extent that you would kind of ever write a woman like this into your um novel and make her like the central figure i mean first of all uh before saying even getting to the misogyny part we know that is a huge fucking gamble in terms of having a good character because this is a a red fucking flag you know trite characterization of women right historically right i mean um you know and we 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 literally like she's not wrong when she makes this critique we literally do get that she demands to have a baby and she becomes this like wild and demanding erotomaniac and she's portrayed in almost animalistic fashion uh, and, th- and, and, you know, if she had other complex qualities, this could have been perfectly fine. This, this literally like the, the fact that she could be so complex, let's say, and could also be this like animal like woman 
that's an interesting contrast, like that you wouldn't associate somebody that that is able to live like a rich, you know, life of the mind, let's say. Um, uh, but but um, uh, 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 we, we like we don't get the complexity. We simply get the animal nature, which like, sorry, like it, it's a deficiency of the characterization. So I, I don't think it's wrong to say that. But like we said, like we wouldn't really phrase things in that way. Um, uh, as, uh, as soon as she's pregnant, she tells Stoner that, quote, she could not endure the touch of his hand upon her, end quote. These inexplicable transformations occur throughout their lives. Also kind of true. Like it's not, you know, her, it's it's consistent in the sense that she's consistently like crazy and unpredictable, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't even give a fuck eventually about like the, 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 the affair. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, from a writerly perspective, these are not very good choices for characterization that, you know, the, the fact that they're inexplicable, that's not good characterization. Um, when their daughter's born, Edith becomes a bedridden invalid for a year, then it goes through a series of personality changes, sometimes ag- agoraphobic, sometimes desperately social. She joins a little theater group, designs and paints sets, attempts sculpture, and starts obsessively practicing the piano two or three hours a day, like a faculty wife version of Zelda Fitzgerald. At the same time, she pressures him into overspending, separates him from his beloved daughter, takes over his study for her art studio, and allows his books and manuscripts to be damaged or destroyed. Literally, like you know, uh, uh, a literal caricature, right? I mean, like, uh-huh. w- like, would you say that this is a, f- a fair characterization of how Edith is depicted? Yeah, this paragraph is spot yeah. on, and yeah. so th- this this highlights quite well and succinctly the issues that we talked about. For yeah. you know, we went on at length uh, earlier yeah. in the video. Yeah, um, I feel like I'm talking a lot. You want to take the rest? Sure. <laughs> When Williams sent a draft of the novel to his agent, Marie Rodell, in the summer of 1963, she was uneasy about the wife's character and wrote back that, quote, Edith's motivations, end quote, need amplification. He made some changes in his account of the couple's courtship, which he thought made Edith's subsequent behavior, quote, more believable. But he makes no effort to explain her feelings. She remains shrewishly and selfishly indifferent to Stoner's professional travails and personal disappointments. She seems to exist only to torment her husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, I think we'd believe we would uh, agree w- with yeah. this, you know, and, and the issues there. Yeah. Um, although Stoner is also presented as a dedicated teacher, he can be punitive and harsh, and is unable to admit his own culpability. Williams tells us that despite an almost religious calling to teach literature, Stoner finds it hard to communicate his passion. We talked about that earlier too. Mm-hmm. At last, after decades of trying. He enjoys some, quote, modest popularity, end quote, in the classroom, but the fates will not allow him to succeed for long. When a PhD candidate named Charles Walker pleads for late admission to his graduate seminar, Stoner assents with reluctance. His first impression of Walker is unpleasantly visceral. The young man has a crippled left arm and foot, end quote, shuffles with a grating sound as he walks. Walker shows up late for the class, and interrupts Stoner's lecture on grammar and rhetoric with annoying questions about the relevance of grammar to great poetry. After a few weeks, Stoner and the other students silence Walker's interventions, but he finally gets his say in a seminar paper that challenges the premises of the course and critiques the paper of a female student whom Stoner particularly admires. So, I mean, in this paragraph, uh, you know, her, her wording is is interesting again and it's just it's kind of strange to me like his first impression of walker is unpleasantly visceral because she's making the case that 
that Williams aired by creating a character in Stoner who was unfair to a student. Right. Yeah. Like that's, that's an argument from earlier in this article. So then we're setting it up to where like, oh, Stoner you know, doesn't really like this guy from the jump because he's crippled. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Like, again, again, is this, is this Williams's problem? Mm-hmm. Like, he, he, if anything, this is an issue with Stoner mm-hmm. himself yeah, as exactly. a person, as a character, yeah. where he's once again not completely sheltered and protected mm-hmm. by the author. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I'd have to go back and reread that section. I don't know that I necessarily, when I was reading, it was like, oh, Stoner obviously immediately is biased against this guy just because he... It, it, you know, is imperfect physically. I, mm-hmm. I don't recall realizing like, Ooh, I kind of don't like that stoner just immediately dismisses this guy because mm-hmm. he doesn't walk normally. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but. Um, uh, I, I think actually, uh, uh, stoner is, there are some passages where he's kind of intimidated by, uh, walkers like, you know, uh, like hand, like I don't know exactly what the nature of the handicaps are, but like physically like handicapped, um, and and uh, uh, like at some point like he tries to like really avoid him as he's kind of like struggling to like go after Stoner faster and faster, and then oh, like right. yeah, there's a passage where he's like he felt ashamed, right? He felt yeah. ashamed at, at having done that. So he uh, I, I I you know um, the, the the thing that I would ask though is okay so. Uh, uh, we know that John Williams himself seems to feel like, okay, uh, I have a saintly character named Stoner and he's like, you know, he's very, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, he, he succeeds as a scholar. Let, let's just assume that all that consensus reading is, is correct. Uh, clearly then if I'm like the good guy in the text, my adver- adversaries then are going to have something like a physical handicap or be like somehow like monstrous in some way, like, or, or be kind of like, you know, classically, you know, Charles uh, uh, Dickens esque, right. Uh, mm-hmm. What is What is it? Is there like a specific phrase for Dickens esque anyway, but you know, like this kind of like Dickens esque, like uh, almost like Gothic fucking like villain type, which, you know, if you think Stoner is the hero here, uh, 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 the, 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 this guy that's just like interrupting the classroom and just misbehaving, um, he, you know, he must like on some level, like just feel like, uh, yeah, like I, I'm gonna, you know, like uh, show this guy as a, as a, you know, cripple to make him into this kind of, you know, very visceral villain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, though, like we did say that, yes, it's frustrating that john williams himself does not take a true position here on you know stoner's knowledge of art right or you know like questions of like failure um uh and 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 that's a problem but uh the fact that there is like enough ambiguity that we can make arguments one way or the other um you know the the effect would be the opposite it's you know let's turn you know stoner into someone that's like a little bit of villain-esque and let's also give you know, uh, Williams, like positive uh, uh, qualities, but let's also give Walker the positive quality that, hey, he's kind of an out of the box thinker. And because he's outside of the box in some way, he has something to offer. But also let's again critique Charles Walker by making him an out of the box thinker that nonetheless still has nothing to offer 
like to, you know, uh, art, right, or to criticism, to scholarship, um, mm-hmm. because his viewpoints, although outside the box in relation to Stoner, are just as generic, you know, on another kind of fundamental level. Um, so we could we could go back and forth and, you know, again, like you, you could make you could take a position yourself one way or the other, even if Williams uh, himself does not want to, because um, you still have the text in front of you. Right. You still have evidence like going one way or another way. But you're going to have to contextualize and, and give this discussion if you're going to talk about this question of how he treats the student. Right. We, we can't say for certain that because here she does the opposite she here like stoner becomes the absolute villain mistreating charles walker right and charles walker is the quiet hero like let, let's just listen to how she talks about charles walker when a phd candidate named charles walker pleads for late admission to his graduate <laughs> seminar not like he was like some lazy fuck that didn't do what he was supposed to do and it's constantly like ill-prepared in every way like every time that we see him and it's like just so kind of like you know mealy fucking mouthed um yeah. Stoner assents with reluctance. Uh, his first impression of Walker is unpleasantly visceral. The young man has a crippled left arm and foot and shuffles with a grating sound as he walks. Walker shows up late for the class and interrupts Stoner's lecture in grammar and rhetoric with annoying questions about the relevance of grammar to great poetry. After a few weeks, Stoner and the other students silence Walker's interventions, but he finally gets to say in a seminar paper that challenges the premises of the course and critiques of the paper of a female student whom Stoner to particularly admire so first of all stoner is like the the paternalistic old fuck that is just lusting after like a younger student uh uh charles walker he's framed as merely challenging the premises of the course right as if like you could imagine like a modern day woke student like saying you know i think this is a racist fucking class and here's why and here's my fucking manifesto right um uh, 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 annoying questions about the relevance of grammar to great poetry. Like, no, like, no, like she's framing it where like everything that he's doing is something that obviously Stoner as a teacher needs to assent to and think is reasonable. When I think reading the text, like, okay, some of the things might be reasonable, but he is just fucking annoying. He's in like Charles Walker is fucking annoying. Like he's yeah. not like a force for good in the book, I don't think. Yeah, I think I think like you could try to make that argument, but it is it is a hard one to make. Um, Stoner is outraged, right? At, at this like reasonable kid just you know trying to be a good student. After class, he charges Walker with dodging the assignment, as if he fucking doesn't. He literally turns in the paper on like like the topic a topic that he said that he wasn't gonna do. Right. He said what he's going to do a paper on. He literally fucking like turns into completely something else, like literally nothing to do with what he said he was going to do. Um, literally nothing to do with the topic of the class. Uh, and 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 like like uh, you went to college, I went to college. I wouldn't fucking dare do that. I just wanted my fucking A and to get out. Like what yeah. the fuck? Like oh, you want to be like you want to be a hero in your fucking college campus? Talk yeah, about that fucking yeah. Talk about fucking like bad motivation. Like talk about not having motivated reasoning. You want to be the fucking academic rebel, 
and 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 you, you and, and and you think I'm just gonna hand in a paper and something else. I want to get my fucking A and get the fuck out and actually do something valuable outside of that system, right? Like not not like literally like try everything within your power. Like oh my god, please don't fail me. Oh my god, let me in. Like you're literally trying to do everything within your power to be so in, in, ensconced in this institution, and then, which is why I call him so fucking mealy now. Like he's so like you know like like Chris Walker is not a pleasant character, right? The way that she characterized him is just wrong. Um, yeah. Well, right. And, and, and if, if he's going to be such an iconoclast and bring these, you know, uh, uh, earth shaking ideas and all mm-hmm. that, let's just shake up the whole literature department, whatever. It's like, yeah, so go write the next great book of poetry, bro. Mm-hmm. Like instead, he's just in there still wanting his PhD still wanting mm-hmm. to become a professor and like, you know, by, by slightly tweaking or fine tuning the take uh, of a couple Latin phrases mm-hmm. on, mm-hmm. on Shakespeare or whatever, like that's really going to just, you know, move the tectonic plates of the arts. And uh, we need to grant him, you know, whatever kind of license he needs because he's obviously just brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's silly. It's silly. Yeah. And then like, like startled, Walker protests that he quote always thought the disagreement was healthy. I assumed they were big enough to like li- like he's literally like doing this thing. He- he's doing this like you know uh, I think one of the reasons why uh, like he- he's doing this thing where um uh, uh 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 he's just clearly being sarcastic in a very kind of like overly feminine way, which is one of the ways where he's made to be this like grotesque like unmasculine sort of character which like okay you could say like is maybe not a good character but uh uh uh, the fact is it's like this thing is not meant to be taken seriously always thought the disagreement was healthy i assumed that you were big like this wasn't meant to put walker in a nice light and she says stoner goes ballistic accusing walker of laziness and dishonesty and ignorance i mean he was all those things yeah. Threatens to flunk him unless he writes a new paper. Guess what? I fucking went to college too. I would be fucking flunked if I turned in a paper on like some topic that wasn't assigned just because I wanted to, right? You're not going to yeah. be a hero there. Um, uh, uh, everything else is bullshit. Uh, threatens to flunk him, you know, as he should. He's a professor, right? Like imagine like, oh, I, I'm going to be a professor and I'm, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you, Charles Walker, a double fucking standard. I'm going to give you all this extra leeway that nobody else gets to have right like because if you do that suddenly you're charged of course with being you know uh ableist in your writing right clearly you're being paternalistic just like a feminist could charge you know uh 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 uh, williams and stoner you know of being paternalistic here like oh look at him going ballistic just to protect you know uh uh uh, the, the fucking delicate may maiden that um uh, uh he you know uh, he thinks can't defend herself right um yeah. uh, who, who also is like as narrow-minded as he is and you know sees an ally and and he just wants to fuck right like you know so like th- this is like and like th- like think about everything think about all the fucking context that we had to set think about everything all the surrounding paragraphs that we discussed i had to literally say that this quote is taken out of context to mean the exact opposite of what williams is saying um and none of this is set up in this article uh you know uh uh uh, uh anyway uh uh, th- th- this is more or less how it ends. I'm not sure if you want to keep keep going with this thing or what. Kind of, yeah, kind I, of I, let's, utility. Let's skip skip further down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then Lomax, of course, is like presented as a fucking like revolutionary, right? Like, and it's like you know another careerist fuck, you know that. Yeah. 
Um, oh, oh, and and uh, yeah, so so uh, like Dan Schneider has always written uh, of this, and I've never. Uh, I've never really seen it that often myself, but I remember this, uh, his precept uh, immediately when I read uh, the kind of ending paragraph here where uh, uh, Dan Schneider in Cosmoetica, he always says that, uh, hey, um, even when modern critics do negative appraisals or reappraisals of texts, what oftentimes happens is after saying all the negative shit, they then spend a paragraph like reneging on all the arguments that they made and still call it an excellent book um, uh, just because they don't want to take a fucking position as well. Like they, they're just they're as fucking mealy mouthed as Charles Walker is. Right. Um, as in some ways, maybe perhaps John Williams is a little bit with not taking true you know, set of positions as he ought in this book. Um uh, 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 she, she nearly ends. This is the penultimate paragraph. This is how she nearly ends her um, uh, 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 article, right? That seems to be very critical of the text. Now, strangely, he is a moving, meaning stoner, uh, a moving exemplar for many readers who see him as an inspiring model of integrity, who faces his sad life with unflinching courage and finds redemption and faithfulness to his ideals. They revere Williams's artistry as a writer of restrained, unsentimental prose that carries great emotional weight. So literally, she fucking gives it up. And she says, "Yeah, in a technical sense, he's a he's a he's an excellent writer." Like she literally mm -hmm. says, "This is a good book. This is well written. This ought to be read by the standards, the, the only set of standards that we could have for books, right? Which is worthy of reading. Literally, the only fucking standard available to you is mm -hmm. this worthy of reading? Yes or no? Um, and depending on how you answer yes or no, there could be many different reasons. But at, at minimum, you need a book to be yes." worthy of reading by you know uh, a human being um and she's saying that in fact you know uh john williams stoner is a book worth reading but it starts with the title classic stoner not so fast right and the entire article is why it's not right but she literally spends the sense giving up that completely right she said and she could say you know my critique of misogyny might stand but um, uh, 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 I'm not willing to say that this is not a classic because the one sentence is they revere Williams' artistry as a writer of restrained, unsentimental prose that carries great emotional weight. Rediscovered at a time when the humanities are in decline, academic jobs are scarce, and teaching takes a backseat to blogging. And oh my fucking goodness, look at her fucking moralizing about this. The humanities are in decline, as if you fucking, with these fucking articles that you write, aren't directly responsible for this shit. <laughs> As if, like, you're not, like, literally showing exactly why this happened, right? Uh, it's just moralizing, like, you know, give me fucking money. Like, I want to be on the up and up once again. Um, humanities are in decline. Academic jobs are scarce. She wants more fucking academics. She wants the fucking diploma mill to continue. She wants the status quo to continue because she's so dependent on the status quo. A hundred fucking percent. She's a Biden voter. She, she fucking <laughs> voted Biden a hundred percent. She has to. This is the function that she fulfills. Um, uh, <laughs> and, and, and teaching takes a backseat to blogging. Oh my fucking goodness. You think your fucking teaching like uh, was, was, was better than my blogging when I blogged? Give me a fucking break, girl. You know, what the fuck? Like I, like I, because I didn't get a PhD. I did, I did, I didn't shape fucking minds, you know, in the right way. 
right? Uh, as if Dan Schneider didn't fucking shape minds in the right way, right? Because uh, all he fucking did was blog. All I fucking did, did was blog. Um, uh, uh, the, the, no the novel's message of humble and heroic service. So now this is a positive. This is where the novel gets good. <laughs> the novel is now good because that's a message of humble and heroic service. Um, yeah, I mean, he, maybe he would have taken the last sentence. Uh, I feel like I'm getting very uh, out of steam now. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, I, I've reached my heights for the night. Yeah, well, the last the last sentence again. I, I think you and I spent a good amount of our time today on the episode. Uh, you know, going counter to this, but the final sentence says, "But Williams's insistence on making Stoner a blameless martyr rather than a man with choices." and denying him any ironic self-awareness about the causes of his Job-like misfortunes leaves the novel far from perfect. So yeah, I, I think we've discussed and dissected quite well how uh, on a more careful reading, Stoner is not, he, he's not invincible. He is not put in a glass case to only be admired. Um, you know, and I mean, it's interesting. It's even another way to, to maybe run counter to some of her points here. Like you, you and I are like straight male readers of this book too. You know what I mean? Like we, we should be the kind of people who would like want to stand in and find ourselves in a way, uh, you know, aligning with yeah. this vision of, of this, you know, every man, stoic, every man who just bears the evils of, you know, relationships and women and the man and all this kind of stuff and we've we've broken that down and said you know it, it doesn't really hold water and here's why and so um anyway you know I, I, we don't have anything invested in the messages we're just trying to talk about the writing and the quality of the book and mm -hmm. the way that you know the because it's a well-written book williams you know although agreed it's not a perfect novel that's that's for sure but uh, but it's a good novel, and it's it's got plenty of merits. Mm -hmm. And uh, while there's some missteps, they they aren't they aren't really where she tries to pin them here. But anyway, I, I was going to say too, just one more like, well, a couple final comments on the book uh, and like these themes here from my end of it. So, uh, it's, you know, she was a formerly a professor at Princeton, you know, a revered Ivy League institution. I will say that one of the things I think that helps the book is that it's set at University of Missouri, mm -hmm. because if this was at Harvard or Princeton or, you know, wherever, Stanford or even like mm -hmm. Berkeley or something that had like the, 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 the classic built in gravitas of just some, you know, massively endowed, uh, you know, Ivy league caliber institution. Uh, I, I think that the pretension, the pretense and, and the pretentious nature of the whole thing would just be mm. too much to bear. Yeah. Um, so, so the fact that he comes from a farming background and becomes a professor for his whole life at a state school in the Midwest where, you know, like University of Missouri has a good, has some good programs, I'm sure, but uh, it's, it's not exactly knocking the, the on the door of, of greatest universities in the mm -hmm. world lists. Um, you know, that, that kind of helps, helps round out some of the story here and, mm -hmm. and also a lot of the relatability of someone like stoner. Mm -hmm. Um, I was talking to you about this before we started recording. So I'll mention it quickly here too, that right before reading this novel, I read on the road by Jack Kerouac mm -hmm. for the first time. I hadn't read it before. And it's, it's just pretty striking how 
though this novel, as we agree, not not a great novel perhaps, but a very good one and, and worthy of a reader's time. Uh, although it's boring from a plot standpoint in a lot of ways, and it's kind of just a depiction of a typical life lived, mm-hmm. it does move along a lot faster than on the road. You know, the books are about the same length, close to 300 pages, published within a decade of each other, late 50s for On the Road, 1965 for this. And the the wild and crazy times and the zany characters in On the Road would on the surface be more interesting mm-hmm. and create a, a breezier read. Uh, that book actually bogs down pretty quickly mm-hmm. and and loses loses all of its uh, all of its gas. Uh, and, and, but, but, and, but like, you know, like technically it's, it's sort of written in a way where it's supposed to do the opposite, right? Like he fucking yeah. for, foregoes like, uh, so, like, like punctuation. Uh, he, you know, it's supposed to sort of, you know, make things like sort of like in, in the moment, like go, 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 go. But, uh, it's instead like, uh, the, like the the brain doesn't like if you're gonna process English, the brain is not gonna process uh, these like mal adaptations, you know, in the way that that you expect it to, simply because you wanted to, simply because you needed to, right? So, um, mm-hmm. I, I've always found that part interesting. I haven't read it since I was a teenager, but yeah, yeah. So anyway, just uh, it created a, a juxtaposition to read yeah. the two back to back like that, and, uh, yeah. and and Stoner's the better book. Oh my god. Oh my god.